podcast this week, we're Talking to Frank, talking to Frank. That's right, we're talking to Frank Marshall, director of the Bee Gees documentary, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Plus, that's not all. We have a party in our house with house party director Reginald Hudlin, director of the new Disney Plus movie, Safety. All that and more on the movie podcast. I would once again like to apologise to the Bee Gees. (laughs) So, so sorry, guys. It's just emotions taking you over, isn't it? It, <laughs> it really is. It really is. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to episode 444 of the Empire Podcast. Very exciting stuff. Oh, yes. All the fours. 444. And, folks, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Copyright, copyright. Uh, This week, I'm delighted to be joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning whom I found under my Christmas tree. More disappointed in getting some socks and a Lynx box set, quite frankly. Oh, Yeah. But hey ho, what can you do? What was it? What was the what was the blue one? Africa was the one that a lot of people had, and the other one was was it Atlantis? What was the what was the blue Lynx spray? I don't know them. By, I only know the names and uh, by smell. Okay. I don't know them by colour. There was a blue one. If anyone, if anyone can remind me of this, please tweet in or something. There was, there was <laughs> I Africa. I was. There's Africa, I remember. Atlantis. There's was it Atlantis? It was the ice. blue one. It was Atlantis. Is ice? You've made that up. You've made that up. Wolf. Wolf? Jet, no, rhino. see, now we're into gladiators. Oh, okay. Anyway, this week I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Uh, first of all is our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? I am. I'm fine. I'm trying to think of what the girl equivalent of Lynx is. But it yeah, was what is the girl equivalent of Lynx? It was Impulse Oxygen back in the nineties. Are you a spray-on person? We, Impulse. I remember the adverts for Impulse. Impulse was massive. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm not usually a spray-on person. No, but um, but mm. this was. Yeah, that that was the smell of childhood. Best stand teenagehood. upwind of Helen, folks. If oh you my God, I don't use a spray. I use a roll-on, not a spray. <laughs> Better coverage, isn't it? Honestly. <laughs> Uh, we're also joined by our geek, I don't even know what you call this week, Grand Admiral. Admiral James Dyer. Hello, Chris. Can I share a piece of news with you now from the news section? Bring it forward into this section, but I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, my okay. God. There's a system, James. I know. I'm a rule breaker. I'm a maverick. I, can't, I don't know what to tell you. Also, so Grand Admiral, I rank you. So let's, let's you just, don't, you know. actually. But, <laughs> what? Right. Queen, I think a queen. queen above a Grand Admiral, for sure. God damn it. That's why I didn't like you being an emperor. Ha. Well, here's the thing, folks. I am God as far as the podcast concerns. Oh, <laughs> so, oh, boy. And I'm pretty sure that a God can beat a King Kong. Anyway, what anyway. I was going to say is <laughs> Nicolas Cage is doing a new Netflix series. I know. Yes. And it is. It is Nicolas Cage's history of swear words. And I've got to be honest with you. If someone, if a genie or a wishstone of some kind came into my possession and asked me for a wish, one of those might be... To erase Could his TV I have show my from history. Ideal TV show. And what would you like? I said, I'd like Nick Cage. What would you like him to do? I'd like him to swear a lot. And no, in fact, I'd like him to explain the etymology of swear words as Nick Cage. And that would be my ideal TV show. No, that, that TV show, I saw a clip of it yesterday and it looks absolutely tedious. And it no, looks amazing. I mean, it just yes, sounds please. like a James fact section, to be honest. It really does, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> I'm actually no longer going to be doing the fact section. I'm just going to drop in an episode of the Nick Cage's History of Swear Words uh, each week for your enjoyment. I don't know what's going on, but, you know, yeah. I- I've got to respect the hustle. Yeah, you really do. 
He's in a suit by a burning fireplace, surrounded by a wooden globe full of whiskey. It's quite And they say Netflix is too much money. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. And there's an urn on the on the mantelpiece. I don't know who's in there, but you know, presumably we'll find out. So. <laughs> The, you know, the previous host of the show, presumably, the cage then killed, <laughs> stuffed in an urn, and then just said swear words. Uh, yeah. Like, Listen, but Jim, but we know this swearing's not big and it's not clever. It is all of these things. <laughs> uh, anyway, you mentioned there the, the fact section of the show. We do like to start the show with the three fact structure. Usually we have a fourth chair uh, revolving around, but... Uh, this week, the chair revolved so fast that the occupant of the fourth chair was catapulted <laughs> into space. Oh, no. So, sadly, it is just the three of us. Um, but listen, you also mentioned Christmas trees. Helen's Christmas tree is right behind her. I can see it right it now in Squadcast. How are we doing with our Christmas shopping, folks? Uh, are we are we okay? Are we sorted? Are we getting anyone any film-related shit? What's happening? I am somewhat sorted. I'm on my way. There's a couple of little things I'd like to buy. Um, sort of sparkly bouncy balls for my niece and nephew who will not be listening. So I feel like that's safe enough to say. And, and- they didn't listen. They couldn't understand it, right? I mean, well, yeah, he he could. He's quite he's quite sharp now. He's nearly three, so he he knows what's what. I'd he's like get- to think the listening comprehension age of this podcast <laughs> is a bit more yeah. than three. I, I don't know. He's he's pretty sharp. Anyway, so uh, I do have a few things. I have also found uh, I found a website that had amazingly ridiculous. Christmas ornaments, and that's what some people are getting for Christmas. One of them, and I'm not saying who this is going to, but one of them is Bjork in her swan dress. Ah, amazing. At the Oscars. And I'm genuinely a bit torn about who to give that to. That is, that's a precious, precious thing. That sounds good. Are you expecting to get any film related stuff yourself? I don't know. Maybe. I think people are scared of bring, buying me film related stuff on the basis that I may already have you it. You hate film. <laughs> well, no, but I did get, I mean, I. I I put pictures on social media, so you might have seen it, but my cat got me, my friend cat got me a bar humbug uh, Lego minifig bobble of myself, which is pretty amazing. So that's wow. kind of film related by a couple of degrees of separation. Not meaning to spoil Christmas, but I have, of course, got you the Criterion edition of Molly's Game, which you'll find under your tree. On <laughs> you know what? The Criterion collection haven't done Molly's Game. You know why? Anyway. Because it's a three-star masterpiece? That's, that's half right. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think it could probably end up in the Criterion Collection uh, at some point, <laughs> but James might have to Photoshop the cover himself. I mm-hmm. think that might be the way the way to go in that one. Jimbo, how are you sorted for Christmas? Uh, I am fine. I've asked for a series of stones for Christmas. They're all different colours. They fit nicely on a sort of <laughs> hand ornament. Um, so we'll see see what Father Christmas can do to do hook me up the there. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm other than that, I'm 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 in good shape. Why didn't Thanos just do that? Instead of like going to all that time and trouble and expense, going around the the universe collecting the Infinity Stones, he could have just asked Santa. Dear Santa, please mm. give me the Infinity Stones for I Christmas. Mean, massive I have oversight been on his part. Very good. Yeah. Irony alert. Santa <laughs> then gets snapped. And he goes, no, ho, ho. <laughs> I presume what Santa does when he says no. He goes, no, ho, ho. I'm disappearing into dust. I should have seen this coming. Oh, no, ho, ho. Oh, no. Do you think we've just inadvertently stumbled onto Amon's screenplay idea <laughs> and, and stolen it? <laughs> He's listening to this podcast going, going, those fuckers. Yep, that's it. That is it. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, anywho, I'm very, very glad that you're all prepped for Christmas, all sorted. Uh, I, myself, I don't know. But if anyone wanted to get me the 
Infinity Saga Blu-ray box set. <laughs> Good lord. And send it my way. Then I wouldn't say no to that, folks. I wouldn't say no to that. I, I, I don't think this is abusing my position to say that. Please send me it. Um, it's absolutely you know. abusing your position. <laughs> and, it's 100%. Uh, send me it right away. Right away. Uh, you know, slide into my DMs and get my address. It's all It's all fine. It's 400 fucking quid. That's that quite thing. a lot of money for films you already have. <laughs> That's true. I thought you can never yeah. have too many copies of Ant-Man and the Wasp. I that is obviously true. It, but then it becomes a slightly odd thing. It's like, do you want the Blu-ray of the Infinity Saga when you can watch it in 4K on Disney Plus? Yes. Yes, because what if the internet goes down and I'm in a mood where I have to yep. watch Endgame, which That's let's be fair. honest is most days. I mean, <laughs> I have to be prepared for that. This is kind of, this is my equivalent of like a bunker full of canned food is my DVD shelves. <laughs> so I, I need them there for security, yeah. man. Mm. I don't have them all either. I don't have them all. No way. I don't actually yeah. either, no. I, d- I don't have Guardians 2, I don't think. I don't have Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's more of a protest <laughs> than anything else. That's not, that's not oversight. <laughs> That's just you. You don't like space floozies, and you don't like Sunny Birch. How can? How dare you? I I would quite like the Lord of the Rings 4K box set. That's quite exciting. <laughs> this is what we're doing now. With... We're just re- we're doing requests. <laughs> no, not that. This is not a please send me the Lord of the Rings 4K. But although, frankly, if you want to go nuts, but um, no, I just because it's like it incre- includes the extended and the theatrical versions. And by all accounts, I'm curious because Peter Jackson's been tinkering with it. Like it's not gone full Lucas, but he's been fucking about with them. The, specifically, mm. the color grading. So I think he's whole point was they were shot in 35 mil whereas the hobbit which he thinks looks better was uh was shot on uh on on you know digital 36 mil. 4K. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it's one mil better so. yeah, it's, well, it's one bigger and uh and he, he it bothered him the color grading in particular on the on the analog uh film bothered him so he's he's been tinkering with the color grading on the original lord of the rings trilogy and the 4k one will look slightly different okay i mean fine did you see this week though the the christopher nolan uh, revelation from Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's, it's probably been up for months, I mean, but he. Uh, we're just skipping straight ahead to the news section. No, now, no, this I isn't even news it. yet. This isn't even news yet. I was just like, I was inspired by your tinkering uh, comment okay. um, that Christopher Nolan carries celluloid, carries film with him in his wallet. He carries <laughs> well, like. Hang on. When you say carries film, do you mean a piece of film or do you mean the embodiment of, of the entity of film, like the briefcase <laughs> well, in Pulp Fiction? Well, both, so when actually, he opens it up, it just glows with a warm golden light. I mean, it, it, he actually carries both. But specifically, <laughs> I was going to refer to the fact that he carries a, a, a frame of 35mm and 70mm and IMAX in his wallet. How big is his wallet? I don't know, but he just like one frame. And he will, he will apparently pull these out and, and show them to you, you know, to discuss film. Steady. There are laws against that. Um, what uh, do we know? What film is on his? his I films? do not know. No, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was not specific on that point. So I feel like Helen, if you had saved this particular for thing for the fact, fact section, section I, I it immediately might have regret served this. you quite well. It's my usual thing where I drop incredible <laughs> facts just randomly into the conversation, and then get to the fact section, and I'm like, oh, I've got All nothing. Right. Okay, well, listen, let's get into the fact section. It's the three fact structure, which this week is the two fact structure. <laughs> Uh, Jimbo and Helen up against each other. They have to impress me with an arcane, unusual, or obscure movie fact and hope that I haven't already heard it. Helen. Hey. You've just dropped an amazing fact, so let's drop, let's drop one now on purpose. A less amazing fact. Um, yes. No, I was just going to talk about, uh, I was thinking about Bridget Jones's diary yesterday. And uh-huh. uh, as, as often happens when that comes up, I was thinking about Colin Firth's Christmas jumper. Mm-hmm. And it so happened that I talked to the director of that film, Sharon Maguire, who told me that Colin Firth's Christmas Jumper is supposed to feature a reindeer, obviously. 
that's what's referred to in the book. That's what he's supposed to be wearing. Um, but in practice, when they sent out that sort of request to a whole bunch of knitters up and down the UK, what came back were suggestions of fairly sane looking jumpers and none of them were stupid enough for the film and for the effect that they wanted to convey. So technically, actually, what's on his jumper is not a reindeer at all. It's a moose. <laughs> so he's actually wearing a moose Christmas jumper in that scene and not a reindeer and that's my fact because I really wow. Does it I have had. a red nose? I can't remember. It does it have a red nose. I'm yeah, at and it right it's, now. but it is. It's just kind of like gloopy looking and sort of like <laughs> sillier than so a reindeer. So they put a red nose work. on a moose. On a moose. Wow. Yes. To to quote that come from away musical. That's a moose. <laughs> what an amusing uh, fact that was, Helen. Hey. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed <laughs> for that. At least it was short. It was anyway, short. James. Four score and seven years ago. <laughs> no, uh, no, I'm going to continue the festive theme with my fact this week. And uh -huh. uh, also, I'm going to continue talking about the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Oh, so I have no. another and I have another Love Actually fact for you this week. Hang on, but Die Hard's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. And I, I hate see what to you're bring saying. up this oh, argument boy. again. But... I see what you're saying, but still. Uh, last week, obviously, I, I told you how, without Pulp Fiction, the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Love Actually, would not exist. So this week, I'm going to tell you that Love Actually also wouldn't have existed without gravy. So back in 2002, like Richard Curtis was filling some time between projects. He was very aware that he'd like to draw his hand at directing. Knowing, knowing the studios might be reluctant to hand him the keys to a film with no experience, he knew exactly where to turn to get some granulated gravy, specifically OXO gravy. And so Curtis wrote and directed an advert featuring the, Os the OXO family, the famous OXO family, which debuted during an episode of Coronation Street. And that, and not Love Actually, is actually his directorial debut, paving the way for the greatest Christmas movie of all time. There you go. It's that simple. He yeah. directed an advert and yeah. they went, here you go. Not just any advert, Chris, the OXO family. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. However, However, Chris, yes. I've just had a push notification. This is called the three-fact structure, and we only have two facts. However, however, I've literally, <laughs> as we, we are it. recording this podcast, I have been tweeted by one of our listeners, uh, a Graham Ireland, and he has submitted a fact. So I'm going to read his fact, and he can be the, the fourth chair this week, <laughs> uh, and we'll see if he wins. So Graham Ireland's fact is this. Did you know... All the Woody toys made after the first Toy Story movie are actually voiced by Tom Hanks's brother because Tom Hanks had lost his voice on recording day. This is only partly true. I've got to be honest with you. I kind of know this. So, so I know his brother, which his name is, help me out, Helen. Um, Jim, Jim, Jim Hanks, Jim Hanks. Jim Hanks, his brother, is an actor, of much less famous actor, but he does, I think he does all the Woody voices. Like, he does for video games and all sorts of stuff. So I don't think it was because Tom Hanks lost his voice. I think that's what Jim Hanks does. I think, like, Tom does all the big-ticket Hollywood roles, and then he farms out the, you know, video games and stuff to his brother, Jim. So Jim does that. He farms out. No offence, Jim, but, you know, you're not Tom. Um, it is time for me to choose a winner. Um, who was the, guy, the guy's name? Graham Ireland? Yes. Well, no, it's factually incorrect, so therefore he's immediately disqualified. Also, he's not part of the uh, three-fact structure, so... Sorry, Graham. Sorry, Graham. Nice try. <sighs> Helen's fact was Fiji. Ah, oh, very good, Bridget. Well done. I have to say, uh, that was that was pretty good. <sighs> Genuinely didn't know that Richard Curtis had directed an advert with the OXO family in it. That's an interesting one. Hey, guys, do you know that the OXO Tower in London is a fine example of cubist architecture. Did you just look that up? Because I can tell you an actual fact about that tower. No, it's a, it's a joke. Okay. Oxo 
cube. cube. I get you. Oh no. Mm, sorry. Anyway, I can tell you. Do you want to know the fact though? Yeah, okay. Go on. So the Oxo Tower has those mm-hmm. windows in the shape of an O and an X and another O, mm-hmm. um, all around the tower at the top. And that is because advertising used to be banned along the river. You were not allowed to put up billboards on the river, and they got around that by building it into the architecture of the building to advertise Oxo. So we should have our own Empire Podcast Tower. Do you think? On the banks yes, of the river, with the windows spelling out "Empire, pay yeah. my wages, you bastards." You motherfuckers. Oh, I apologize. There might not be enough windows for that. (laughs) 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 All right, I think we should just have to, we should just demolish the Tate and just put up the the Empire Podcast Tower. I think that's totally fine. No one's going to have any problems with that. Uh, Um, Helen, with apologies to you and Colin Firth and Sharon McGuire. Oh my God. I think James has won this week. Fine. Yes. Yes. Big thanks to Joe Barton for providing me with that fact. Helen. You have won this week's show. Well, yes, well done. I got well another done. freebie from another reader. Yep. Absolute lazy bastard. Yep. Not just any listener, Jimbo. That's the writer of Giri Haji, Joe it, Barton himself. It is, yes. I brought in a ringer. I brought in a ringer, and that is how I'm going to win from now on. So if any famous screenwriters wish to send me facts for the free fact structure and make me win, that would be brilliant. You're a massive cheat. Yeah. <laughs> Outrageous. True heroes don't come from lies, James. <laughs> I mean, really? Uh, anyway, that was the three facts structure. Come back next week to find which screenwriter has slipped Jimbo uh, a hot fact. Uh, Helen, I can only presume <laughs> that you're going to team up with directors from now on. Yes, of course, as I so often do. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Anyway, that was the three facts structure. Now it is time to go straight into this week's listener question. At Chris the Second, very exciting, on Twitter, and he asks... Which film should have a Christmas-based sequel in the manner of Harold and Kumar? Thinking Fast and Furious, but Christmas-themed, so it's even more family-centric. Mm. I love that. Mm. I love that the third Harold and Kumar film is just a bonkers Christmas movie, <laughs> in which Santa gets shot with a shotgun as well. <laughs> we, should, you know, we should point that out. Yeah, he should have got either way. I love that film, actually. It's really fun. It is really fun. Uh, I would, I mean, yeah, Fast and Furious, 100%, like so much discussion of family, like it would just be unbelievable. They'd have to deliver Santa's presents, which would involve going faster than ever before. <laughs> you know, um, I, I just think they, they're building up that way, let's be honest. like well, it's, a massive it's sleigh chase happen. at the end with, with yeah. Dom and The Rock and Letty and all that lot. Yeah, and and, and uh, what do you call her? Charlize Theron teams up with the Grinch or something to try and stop them, and that's what they have to kind of undo. I, it's all there. That's probably more realistic than what Fast and Furious <laughs> 9 is going to be. In yep. fairness, Hobson Shaw fighting over a cracker. Ho ho, Hobson Shaw. Mmm, <laughs> indeed. But it would have to be like a titanium cracker, you yeah. know, like it'd be fighting it'd be... with them, like dual wielding oh, them, beating people them. up with them. Oh, yeah, I see. yeah, yeah. Also, I, you know, like like turkey and Coronas Christmas Day. Is that you know, is that the way forward? Coronas is not a word we can casually use this year, James. Dominic Toretto in a kind of festive Christmas singlet vest thing with a moose on the front. Surely <laughs> yes, a, a singlet is the most Christmassy thing you can wear. <laughs> oh, he wears you know. a doublet. Because he's so massive. Oh, God, I really wish he would. Now that's something I would like to say. He probably wishes he would. He loves his Dungeons and Dragons, doesn't he? He does. Merry yeah. Christmas, everybody. From me, Tom Toretto. <laughs> Holy shit. How does he do that? <laughs> how does he do that? Wild. Uh, Helen, on an, on an upcoming yeah. slash recent episode of your popular Christmas-themed podcast, Bah Humbug. Thank you, yes. I think 
one of your guests, an amusing and erudite chap, talked about Marvel doing a, a film called Captain America, The Christmas Soldier. Oh, and my that's God. what they should do, don't you think? They should totally and yes. utterly 100% do that. 100%. Like, couldn't be more 100%y on that. I would yes. absolutely watch that very, very often. Mm. It would be great. Sebastian Stan coming down people's chimneys. Beg your pardon. Not a euphemism. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I think I think it would be great. I think you know he could like hand out presents to people in need. It'd be fantastic. But yeah, I, I, I obviously a Marvel Christmas movie is another. Sorry, Marvel Christmas movie is of course mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the answers. Um, but I just feel like most franchises after a while could be could be improved by a Christmas movie edition. It would widen out the scope of Christmas movies a little bit beyond rich workaholic moves to small town, meet somebody who wears a lot of plaid, falls in love. I, I just feel like we need to mix that up a bit, you know, and have have some more things in there. So, you know, Bond Christmas movie, there you go. That one's for free. I don't know exactly what he'd do, but he'd he'd blow things well, up. And-, and for your eyes only, he does drop Blofeld down a chimney. So perhaps mm. that could be what Christmas is. He has already had Christmas in Turkey, so. <laughs> Christmas comes... I thought Christmas comes only once a year, he said, like as if James Bond has ever made a woman come. (laughs) Oh, the world really is not enough. I mean, mean, that's a man who takes care of himself first. And if the woman happens to be in the same realm of sexual pleasure at the same time, then so be it. But generally speaking, he doesn't give a shit. But a Bond Christmas movie could absolutely be him. Be him? A A Bond Christmas movie could absolutely be him and Blofeld who, of course, are now canonically half-brothers. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, okay, oh let's go with that. What? No. Saying, let's let bygones be bygones. Santa has died because of a spectre operation that's gone wrong. Uh, Blofeld has come over all remorseful at this, and he's going, mm. hello, James, why don't you team up and help the little children get the present? <laughs> And then uh, Bond's like... That was terrifying. Hey, uh, okay then. I'll do that then. Well, yeah, let's get the presents in the sleigh. And so he gets What's the presents. It's, it's Pierce Brosnan Bond. Oh, and, so, and so they get together and they, they, they ride a sleigh, which has been created by a Q branch, of course. Of course, yes. Of course. And... Um, yeah, and, all, and they fly the around the world. Explode. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And he drops, and he, he drops Bluefelt <laughs> in the chimney of every single house he can find. That's amazing. So, yeah. I mean, the the problem with with this question though is that a lot of franchises actually already have a Christmas instalment. You know, Harry what? Potter has Christmas all the time, obviously, but even something like uh, Jurassic World Christmas yeah. movie already Christmas a movie. Christmas movie already. So um, you yeah, know, that's done. Uh, Star Jumanji. Wars already has one. Jumanji. Jumanji Christmas movie. Jumanji, Jumanji, uh, Welcome to the Jungle is a Christmas movie. Is a Christmas movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man Christmas movie. Kind of had it in that we, he has a Christmas album, therefore, that's a Christmas movie. That makes me wonder if Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I suspect we'll be talking Spider-Man later on, but I, I wonder if Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is officially a Christmas movie or if that just happens to be an album he has recorded at Christmas uh, Yeah. that happens to be playing... During the, the movie. I don't yeah. think it's a Christmas movie, but I do think it's a Christmas album, so it's a little unclear. Jim, but am I right in thinking that two entries in the popular Die Hard franchise are Christmas movies? Is this true? Good I've read something about this on the internet. Yes, yes, Chris. I, I've heard that same rumour that they too are vying for Love Actually's crown as the greatest Christmas <laughs> movie ever made. So I don't know. 
I'm very conflicted because if Die Hard is a Christmas movie, then I have to pick between those two and I'm not prepared to. <laughs> but, but it is. A, I'm, uh, I'm not having this discussion again. I'm not having this discussion I'm, again. I'm definitely not having this discussion again. It's the most boring discussion. I'm going to say this. that I think an alien Christmas movie is something that really <laughs> oh, we are all owed. And not just because the Christmas dinner scene would be particularly eventful. Oh, no. uh, but also because David would get flutes for everyone and then run around insisting on doing the fingering. And it would just be, you know, weird and awkward and inappropriate. I'm not sure that's really Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year round, isn't it? The chest burster, it's a lovely Christmas surprise for people. (laughs) (laughs) A chest burster is for life and not just for Christmas? Yeah, precisely. Like, what's under the box? You shake the box of the Christmas tree going, is it Lynx Africa? Is it some socks? It's a face hugger. (laughs) And everyone likes hugs at Christmas. This could be a really good way to get rid of the aunt and uncle that you don't like who didn't get you the Infinity Saga box set on Blu-ray for Christmas. (laughs) Chris, you're not getting the Infinity Saga Blu-ray box set for Christmas. I think if I said enough, I'm going to will it into existence. Well, you need the reality stone for that, and I'm getting that for Christmas, so unfortunately you're fucked. (laughs) I've got the reality check stone, sadly. Um, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, I I stumbled upon this a few years ago because it suddenly popped into my head that there wasn't an official carry-on Christmas movie, right? You can just Mm. imagine all the innuendo and double entendre as they sent that. <laughs> you can just imagine all of those in a Christmas movie with Sid James cackling about, you know, all the stuff well, that I've said in this podcast going pretty up much. The chimney, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, bulging sacks coming down people's yeah. chimneys, you know, what a tasty bird. Let's dig into it, you know, all this, oh, oh, that's a bit juicy. All that sort of stuff, mm. right? I'll have you a can breast, imagine please. That. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have, oh, I'm a bit of a breast, man, myself. Ooh, <laughs> I like a thigh. Mm. <laughs> All that stuff. And uh, I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to write a spec script. It's not going to win me an Oscar like I'm on uh, set last week, but I'm going to write. I'm going to bring Carry On back by writing Carry On Christmas or Carry On Up the Chimney. And then someone said on Twitter, no, they, they did it, but they just did it as a TV movie. That apparently there were uh-huh. four Carry On kind of specials made for TV in the 60s that weren't considered to be part of... The, the official canon of, of Carry On, if there is such a thing. Can you just imagine that Sid James playing Sid Claus or Kenneth Williams as his head elf? That would be hilarious. would be brilliant. I've never seen it. So if anyone can like hook me up with a copy of that and also the Infinity Saga box set and Blu-ray, that would be amazing. Thank you. We haven't had a... Have we had a Batman Christmas movie? Oh, yes, yeah, we have. Batman Returns. Batman Returns. The greatest, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, any more for any more with this? There's obviously no indie Christmas movie. There's no Mission Impossible Christmas movie. Ethan Hunt hanging upside down from a Christmas tree. <laughs> a Mission Impossible Christmas movie, like what? He's the bauble in this scenario. No, uh, but again, you know, like the Fast and Furious gang, I think he'd help Santa deliver the presents. It, it does make a certain amount of sense just dangling off tall things. He could be dangling off the sled as it flies across the world. Tangling off Peter Crouch. That's what his next task is. Just to clamber up Peter Crouch. He's six foot seven. That's tall. It's not the tallest. There are taller, but it's pretty damn tall. Well, I think that is it for the listener question section. I think we've answered that definitively and to the pleasure of Chris the Second, uh, who got in touch with me on Twitter. And if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor Podcast, Twitter is mainly the place to do it these days, folks. Certainly during the pandemic, when my access to the podcast at empireonline.com email address is uh, a little bit stymied as things stand right now. 
However, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets. You can wait for a panicked shout out of a Thursday. Although we're actually good for next week. So the next week is our last show of the year, December 18th. There will be a couple of specials to come after that and uh, some spoiler specials as well if you are a subscriber to that. But next week, December 18th, is the last regular podcast of the year and we have a ton of Christmas questions that we have reserved and set aside and we're going to tackle them in a bumper-sized, because that's going to be a two-parter that show. Get ready. Uh, It's going to be a bumper-sized listener question section. So prepare yourselves. Uh, so we're good for questions for the time being. But if you do want to slide in my DMs or reply to me with something that we can use uh, going forward from January on, then please do so. Uh, I'm also being contacted by people on Instagram and DMs uh, these days as well, um, uh, where I am at CTAH1976. Pithy. Trips off the tongue. Sticks in the brain. <laughs> Best username ever. Oh, yeah. Uh <laughs> Anyway, it is time now for our first guest this week, Reginald Hudlin, for It Is He, is a director who has had quite the career. So he shot onto the scene 30 years ago. Bloody hell, makes me and him, I imagine, feel old as well with the classic comedy House Party, which he made, of course, with his brother, Warrington Hudlin. Uh, And since then, Reginald Hudlin's had this interesting career so he directed things like boomerang with eddie murphy serving sarah with elizabeth hurley and matthew perry and bruce campbell uh and that was pretty much it for him as a director on the big screen for a long long time uh, but he went off and did a lot of other stuff he um he directed a lot of tv he wrote some black panther comics as well he is the co-creator of shuri would you believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a whole bunch of stuff as well. He produced the Oscars. He produced the Emmys. He became the president of Black Entertainment Television, a.k.a. BET. He's had an incredibly fascinating career, and he's returned to film directing as of the last few years, first of all with Marshall, which came out a few years ago and starred mm-hmm. the late Chadwick Boseman, of course. And now with this week's Safety, which is a... American football drama, true life American football drama, which is on Disney Plus as of today. And it is about a guy called Ray McArathby, who had a scholarship at college to play American football and found things getting complicated when he found himself having to look after his younger brother. And this uh, true life case got garnered a lot of attention in real life as well, including on the Oprah Winfrey show, which is where it came to a prominence for a lot of people. So it's a really fun, interesting flick. And I was delighted to spend some time with Reginald over, yes, I'm afraid to say it, folks, the dread Zoom last week. And uh, this is an interesting one. I hadn't really encountered this on Zoom before. He was wearing headphones, so we could talk over each other. We could do a bit of crosstalk. But for some reason, he sounds like he's using an old-timey phone from the 1930s. Uh, I'm going to try and do what I can about that in post, but I may not be able to do too much. But hopefully you will enjoy the conversation anyway. So here it is, me talking to Reginald Hudlin. Do please enjoy. Uh, Hi, Reginald. How's it going, sir? Very good. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Can't complain. Uh, Thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking time out to talk to the Empire Podcast. How's your pandemic been? How's your lockdown been? Well, uh, it, you know, given it's horrible, uh, actually life's been pretty good. So I, I'm, I'm grateful. You had to finish safety, didn't you? During yeah, I, I finished a movie. Uh, you know, my family's healthy, so I'll, I'll take the wins wherever I can get them. Fair enough. This is a movie that whenever you first read the script, I read an interview with you that you said you were walking around, you were 20 pages in, 
you were beginning to really like it. And then after about 60 pages, you said to your wife, I'm going to work. Is, <laughs> is that something that happens to you often, that sort of instant connection with a script? No, uh, which, is why, which is why when it happens, you got to walk around. You go, whoa, this is a good one. Let's go. And because very often a script is a good idea, but the but the uh, you know the movie script needs work. So you come in, you go, I've got a vision for how to get this to where it should be, as opposed to, I want to shoot the words on this page, and that's the feeling I had with this with this script, which is a rare and special feeling. Had you had that before in your career? You know, a, a few times. Sometimes I didn't get the movie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I would have shot it. So sometimes you've been like, you, you said to your wife, you know what, I'm going to work. And then five minutes later, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm home. I'm home for lunch, honey. What, what, what are we eating? <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> precisely. So what was it about this one? What was it about safety that, that grabbed you specifically? Well... It's a sports movie, so you know it's going to be entertaining, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I knew it made people laugh. I knew it would make people cry. And I knew people would walk away feeling inspired. What's wrong with that? That's, that's, everything, <laughs> that's a smorgasbord. That's everything you want in a movie. <laughs> if only it was that simple, right? It kind of is. What do people want? They want everything, right? Uh-huh. So just give them everything. And most movies don't do that. This movie does it. It doesn't happen that often, but man, when it does, it's great. But I think I think you might you might be underplaying your role in making this movie entertaining. Just a tad. You might just be underplaying it just a tad. Well, so how do yeah, you, how do you I combine mean, you all got, those elements? Yeah, yes. I mean, the, if you see a great blueprint, you still have to build the house. There's no question about it. Um, yeah. I'm just saying. I knew I could take it from there, right? I knew I could get it to where it should be. And where do you start with that? Well, you, you start uh, with the casting. You know, you, you know, you put together a great cast of actors. You put together a great crew, your cinematographer, product, all those departments. And what was great is because the script was great and because it was about a true story, you know, everyone's there for the same reason. You're all rowing the boat in the same direction. And that makes it a lot easier. What were you looking for from your cast? Because it's, a, it's an interesting blend of recognizable faces and names, mm-hmm. newcomers, people who have athletic ability. Yeah. You know, Jay, your star, is he seems like he's he knows his way around a, a football field. Oh, indeed. And in fact, that was part of his audition. After he came in and read and killed that part. We said, yep. okay, meet you out in the field. And, uh, you know, oh, let's throw him a ball. Let's see him throw a ball. Uh, let's see him run. Let's see if he can take a hit. And, you know, he had what it takes. So we said, okay, we don't have to fake this. It's not going to be some Hollywood nonsense. This is a guy who can really <laughs> credibly pull off the athletics in the film. Did he meet the real Ray? Yes. It, well, it turns out, they actually lived like a block and a half from each other. And um, so Jay called Ray and said, hey, I'd like to meet. Uh, maybe we can go have lunch. And Ray was like, I don't want to have lunch. Let's meet at the gym. So because for Ray, 
how you work out is who you are as a person. So he wanted to know who Jay really was. And okay. uh, I think that involved, um, you know, how, how many pounds can you lift before you pass out? Something like that. <laughs> That's that's very tough. That's, those are very tough circumstances under which to meet. Um, I, I, did you pass muster? Did did he have? Did you have to work out for Ray in order uh, to not. win his trust? He invited me, and I I said, "Sounds great," and that was the end of that. I <laughs> I never followed up. That's the thing about directors, right? They don't have to work out. That they, they they hire people to do the running for them. It's better if you do. Uh, the trick is. I don't see, I've never been able to figure out how you work out and make a movie at the same time. I mean, you're doing 16 hour days, right? Yeah. And I just don't see where that workout hour comes in. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And how do you get through the days? I mean, how do you, how do you pace yourself with directing? Well, it's a combination of two really key ingredients, excitement and fear, Right. The excitement is, oh, you're going to make this cool thing. You've got this vision in your head. Now you're going to bring it to life. And fear is, I'm going to ruin it. And it's going to ruin the movie. And we've wasted <laughs> everyone's time and money. So uh, <laughs> that's the carrot and the stick that gets you up and focused. Has that worn off over the years? Because, no, you know, you're, no, you're, no. It's, no? No, it's, no, that never goes away. Oh, really? Those are, are constants. Okay, so so let's see if we can play a little comparison game for a second because sure. just just as as fate would have it, uh, Reginald uh, House Party is thirty years old this year, which it, it is in fact. I mean, that makes me feel old. I don't know how it makes you feel, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, so can you remember your first day on that movie and how how scared slash nervous, or were you like super overconfident about that no, one? No, it, it it was it was like. I've never made a movie before. So you're like, okay, I've talked my way into this position. Now I'll be actually going to live up to it. And I remember we were shooting a shot in the project. And there was a scene where one of the actors in the background was going to be talking on the phone while the two main actors were going to be, uh, and we, so the guy in the background talking on the phone and the person on the foreground who were talking, we're like, look, mm -hmm. if this guy's on the phone in the back, he's going to interrupt the people in the front. I, and he wasn't wearing a shirt. So we had no way to hide the microphone on him. Yeah. So I said, fine, just have him turn around while he's talking so we won't see his mouth and he can mime like he's talking. And the guys in the crew were like, hmm. And I realized I had passed a test. It wasn't set up to be a test, but it was this kid thinks on his feet, okay, we'll invest in him. You know, uh, and it, it just felt great because they're like, because I was a kid. I, you know, all these veteran guys around me, and you, you yeah. want, you want to earn their respect. And in that moment, there was a little check mark. That's amazing. And so then, fast forward thirty years later to safety, day one again. Are you more confident now, or are you still slightly nervous? Well. I look for the nervousness. I mean, you know, I try to make, uh, that's why I don't really repeat myself. I do comedies, then I do a drama, then I do an animated movie, then I do a documentary because the fear, you know, you, you, makes you bring your A game because, you know, the possibility of failure rises. Yeah. 
So you go, well, I've never done a football movie. I mean, what the heck? I mean, people <laughs> love football. I mean, I mean, if you're bad, they'll kill you. So, uh, so yeah, there was a little bit of like, mm. and that first week we had to shoot this big scene, uh, all of the things in the stadium. We had to shoot four different scenes in 10 minutes. You know, we had no time for do-overs. We had 85,000 people there. Uh, the, the president of the studio flew in because he wanted to see the football game and support it. So we we're like, oh, the boss is watching. So uh, we knew walkie-talkies weren't going to work. Uh, cell phones, texting, that wasn't going to work. So we had to use flags like we were in the 16th century with a schooner. Like to communicate, and we got the whole thing done in seven and a half minutes. <laughs> so, so the stadium's full for a game. Was this during halftime, or is this at the it was end, during the beginning? Time, and I told the actors, I said, "Look, this is a huge crowd, and when they start cheering, your adrenaline's going to spike as you're running down the hill. Don't get overexcited because you'll twist your ankle." And we ain't got time for that. We got 10 minutes. You got to nail it. Um, and when the crowd cheered, it was so loud. In fact, they measured these things. It was the third largest crowd cheer in the history of the stadium. It was so <laughs> loud, every hair stood on it. I was starting to lose it. Forget the action. I was like, holy moly, what's happening right now? Um, and it was an incredible moment. And we pulled it off. As you mentioned as well, you know, you have, you know, it is a sports movie. Uh, there's another element to it, of course, as well, but it is a sports movie. And you are a cinephile. I mean, you, you know, movies inside and out. So what were the, what were the ghosts on your shoulder? What, what, what were the movies that were whispering in your ear? Do it like this or don't do it like this. Well, I mean, you know, the trick is, I mean, you see where the bar is set. And, you know, you look at movies like Any Given Sunday. You look at Friday Night Lights. Uh, you remember the Titans, uh, mm -hmm. uh, e you know, even other sports, you know, Hoosiers or what have you, you go, okay, these are great yeah. movies. So, you know, are those the last word? Do you have anything new to add? What do you have to say to contribute to the Pantheon? And fortunately we had Ray's story. His life story, uh, I thought was both unique and yet incredibly relatable. Uh, in fact, you don't have to like football to like the movie. Uh, I think there's enough universal human elements that you can connect to no matter what. Because there's, there's a triumph, but it's not necessarily an on-the-field triumph. Exactly. And, and that's what people have noticed. They're really surprised. They said, I thought I was going to see one movie, but it's a whole other movie, and I really like the movie I didn't expect to see. <laughs> and I know as well from reading previous interviews with you as well that it's important to you to make a movie that has a, a positive black role model in it as well. This is something that's been mm -hmm. important for you throughout your career as well, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, positive feels like public relations, and that's not my goal. It's really more <laughs> authentic, three dimensional, yeah. real. You know, um, it's. You know, uh, you know, and I want to I want to see heroes win, you know, and look, what makes a hero uh, is obstacles, setbacks, uh, you know, to quote the great George Clinton, without humps, there's no getting over. Right. <laughs> so we have to see them 
in real problems. And we go, oh, yes, I can relate to that problem. I've had that problem. What's he going to do? I couldn't do anything about it. Oh, my God, he overcame yeah. it. And now I, maybe I can overcome it. And, you yeah. know, that's the joy uh, of a movie that works the right way. Absolutely. Because you, you mentioned earlier on that you like to move around, like you don't like to do the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up anyway. But <laughs> you, you saw me, you headed me off at the pass. Yeah. And even even looking at the, the wall behind you, I mean, there's mm -hmm. there's little snapshots of uh, of your career. There's a poster for the Oscars, the, the Oscars that you produced, for mm -hmm. the love of God. I mean, so you produced the Oscars, you produced the Emmys, you've directed movies, you've directed TV. That desire never to be pinned down, never to be typecast. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, as you said, that came directly after House Party because I think it would have been easy for you to be locked into making a, a, a run of House Party sequels, mm -hmm. a run of House Party ripoffs even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, uh, the studio didn't want to pay me fairly, so I moved on. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so, and so then I got a call from Eddie Murphy. He goes, hey, let's make a movie together. Yeah, wow. So it, it kind of turned out that way. It, it turned out great. and. Uh, you know, over the years, um, I, it's it's really more like, oh, that looks like fun. You know, it's something. It's just mm. that simple. You know, you oh, let's go. Oh, oh, look at that. You know, you 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 you're, you're a kid in a toy store and you want to play with all the toys. You go. You don't want to just play with trucks. No, I also like building blocks. And oh, you know, uh, you know, uh, look at those action figures. So. Mm. Uh, I, you know, uh, when the old days, you look at a guy like Howard Hawks, you know, and he yeah. makes Red River, one of the greatest Westerns ever. Then he turns around and makes His Girl Friday, one of the funniest movies ever. And I go, well, why can't I do that? Why can't I just, yeah. you know, I want to make a science fiction movie. I want to make a musical. I, I want to do all kinds of things. So that's what I want to do. I just want to play. Yeah, absolutely. But people always are, are always trying to pigeonhole directors, aren't they? They're always trying to say, you, you've done this, now you have to do this. You, you know, get back in your box, essentially. Yeah, get, get back in your box. But here's the thing. It's not a box if, if that's what you want to do. I mean, look, Alfred Hitchcock has a genius career, and he made so many wonderful movies. I'm glad mm -hmm. he did what he wanted to do. That was wonderful. So I don't know that there's a right or wrong to this. You know, I just think yeah, of course. everyone does does what they want to the best of their ability. And, you know, and we, we get to enjoy it. Because it, it strikes me that if you had sat down before you, you directed House Party mm -hmm. and you'd written down a sort of a checklist, not, not a bucket list necessarily, but a checklist <laughs> of all the things you want to do and you want to achieve in life, you know, film director, mm -hmm. writing comics, producing the Oscars, <laughs> which blows my mind still. <laughs> You've done it all. I mean, so, you know, are these goals that you set out specifically to do? I mean, you know, writing comics, writing, you know, writing Black Panther. Well, some of them I planned on, some of them I didn't, you know? Yeah. Uh, did I want to write comic books? Absolutely. That was, I, I had some, I had some opinions about Black Panther. And, and then while writing Black Panther, I say, oh, what else do you want to write? What do you mean? Want to write Spider-Man? Sure. <laughs> so ended up writing a year of Spider-Man. It was great. I hadn't planned on producing the Oscars. Uh, I had some thoughts about what might make for a cool show, and then they offered it to me. They're like, great. Uh, so sometimes, I mean, I had I thought about running a network. Sure, I had some opinions. 
wasn't yeah. a goal I was working toward. One day the phone rang and he said, do you want to run black entertainment television? Well, sure. So <laughs> sometimes it's a goal. Sometimes it lands in your lap. You know, it's just working hard creates opportunity. You know, yeah. you know, you just, hopefully if you work hard enough, you create this cubic millimeter of chance and it's only open for a few minutes. So if you're prepared in the minute that it opens and you dive through, then you're on the other side. Then you see what's happening on the other side, and then you go from there. And what's next for you? Because I know that you were you were looking at directing a a musical at one point yeah, before Safety I'm, came along. I've got a bunch of things. I've got some. Uh, I'm getting ready to do another award show of the NAACP Image Awards that'll be in February. I'm doing a special on you know what's happening in terms of protests and stuff for YouTube that uh, will also come out soon. Uh, I'm going to write some comic books um, for uh, my new company, Milestone Media. Uh, so that, that'll be in conjunction with uh, the folks at DC Comics. Um, and, uh, I don't know, working on some documentaries, maybe a <laughs> superhero type thing, maybe a musical. I, you know, as they say, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. So, <laughs> All I do is work hard and see what happens. This is very, very true. Um, Reginald, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Same here. It's been a blast. And uh, best of luck with whatever you're doing, which, as always, seems to be everything. (laughs) Yes, everything (laughs) seems to be the safest route for me. (laughs) If in doubt, do everything. Fantastic. Cheers, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, so that was Reginald Hudlin, and we'll be talking briefly about safety in the Refuse section later on in the show. But it is now time to dig into this week's movie news, and I guess we should start with the continuing fallout from last week's big old shockeroo, which we talked about at length on last week's pod, which was the news that Warner Brothers have detonated the whole theatrical movie-going concept by declaring that they're going to release their entire 2021 slate, including the heavy hitter the Tom and Jerry movie to streaming at the same time as those movies will show in cinemas, wherever cinemas A, still exist, and B, are open. Uh, we talked about that at length last week. I actually cut out a fairly lengthy section where we talked about whether Warner Brothers had maybe squared this away with their key talent beforehand, people like Chris Nolan, uh, people who have deals with the studio, because we felt I felt, well, A, it was running a bit long, but also B, I thought it was maybe a little bit inside baseball, and C, I thought, of course they're going to have squared the stuff all away with their, their big stars before making this announcement. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it seems mm. that they did, to an extent... But also that some of the big stars are not particularly happy about this. And Chris Nolan himself has not been backwards in coming forwards about this, as you say, in the motherland. Uh, and he has uh, he has said, well, basically, he disagrees with this decision. Uh, he, <laughs> has he? Likened, <laughs> he has likened uh, HBO Max, which this is designed to give a big old bump to, as the worst streaming service. Of course, it can now be the worst streaming service now that Quibi is officially dead. But <laughs> yeah, wow. Can open. Nolan worms everywhere. <laughs> Nolan in being theatrical purist shocker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not not unexpected, is it? Like they they were always going to be poking a bear in that particular instance, mm. I think. 
Yes, yeah, still, n- words were not minced, however, which is perhaps... No, no, he didn't pull his yes, punches, no. given his long relationship with that studio. You know, you might have thought that he'd have been... But maybe that's part of it. Like, you know, they told them, or they told a lot of people, I don't know where they called him, but they certainly informed a lot of people involved 90 minutes before the announcement, mm-hmm. not giving them any time to formulate a public response. And I imagine he was, what's the word, fucking furious. So, um, But this is wild because he has been with Warner Brothers since year yeah. dot and yeah. they are the company mm-hmm. that, you know, he's got such a great relationship with them. Obviously, he made a lot of money from him. He's made tons of money for them over the years. Yeah. Hmm. And this seems to be a bridge burner of an announcement. Can you imagine that he would even want to work there? Would they even want to work with him again after this? I can imagine. We have had situations where people disagree to roughly this extent, maybe not quite so stridently. And and come around, but certainly, yeah, certainly. In in while this model remains in place, I can't see oh, him yeah. working with them. I firmly believe he will refuse to make any more movies with them if they insist on putting them straight to streaming. This, this is a man who refuses to shoot on digital. Like, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, there is absolutely no way he is embracing mm. the future of technology ever. He still starts his cars by hand with those little yeah, with crank- a crank yeah. in the front. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, he has to wind the little rubber band. Hello, London. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, look, fair play to him. Like, I, I wouldn't want to see a Christopher Nolan film for the first time on a streaming service. So I don't, you know, disagree with him. But, um, you know, and I think certainly f- from a filmmaker's point of view, there, there are two aspects to it, isn't it? There's the fact that from a creative point of view, he makes his films, he shoots increasingly large chunks of his films on fucking IMAX cameras for mm. IMAX screens. You know, he makes his films as theatrically exhibited pieces of art like he they're designed for theatrical exhibition and you know to say to him oh everyone's gonna be watching it on their laptop and you know what that's that's not what he wants and i think a lot of artists are going to have that exactly the same thing that they they want something that's going to be a theatrical event that people will see in the cinema Mm. that's obviously one side of the coin the other side of the coin of course is money in that most of these people get back ends off the box office and what does that mean when the box office is smaller because it's going straight to streaming Mm -hmm. like you know obviously it broke that Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins got 10 million each. Was it 10 million? I think it was like, or was it more? It was 14. I think it was 14 million each because Wonder Woman went to streaming when it went out. Well, it didn't even so much go out theatrically everywhere, but because Wonder Woman was going to HBO Max, they got payouts to compensate them for the back end of the box office that they then wouldn't get. But my understanding is that no one connected to any of the films in 2021 are getting that same deal. All they're getting with is meh. It's going to streaming. And th- that is my understanding of the facts. You know, I, I obviously I don't work at Warner Brothers. I cannot tell you what the legalities of it are. Certainly that's what's been reported. So you can imagine people being a little bit pissed. So this is a bit like, fuck you, pay me. They've gone full Ray Liotta yeah, and Goodfellas. I, I think it's both. I think it's, you know, as artists, we are feeling that this is, you know, curbing our creativity, but also fuck you, pay me, where's my money? Um, I think it's probably mm. a little bit of both of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've, if you've signed up on the basis of getting a slice of box office and then yeah. there is a and a strategy announced that absolutely takes that away from you then i, I think a little bit of discomfort would be would be justified <laughs> but yeah. i think with nolan though no, it, it is about preserving the theatrical oh, it's experience yeah. that's, I, yeah. with that's him it's not thing. it's not a money thing yeah, yeah. that's his I'm bag. Sure it's- it's quite literally his wallet, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Here, Chris, have an extra 50 million if you shoot on digital for fuck you! <laughs> like, there's absolutely no way he'd do it. It's just, it just wouldn't happen. So with him, I do I do firmly believe it's all about the, the art. Maybe that's why well. he keeps those pieces of film in his wallet, so he can just <laughs> fire them like odd job at people if they displease him. And it's, you know. I thought you were going to say, like, like some people carry, like, like porn pictures around with them. Like, that's his... Who carries porn pictures around with him? You have a phone. You have you can access porn on your phone. Why would you carry? This is pictures Nolan. Around Do you imagine you? he's on the internet? 
Does he have a lackey carrying a projector around with him at every time? In case he goes, quick, I have the original print of Murder Mystery and I must watch it. Because he's refused to watch any of the last few Adam Sandler movies because they're all on Netflix. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's the reason. Is that is that what's happening here? That's what's happening this here. This was shot in digital HD. I will not watch it. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm very good. What? You learn, what's lackey, happening? quickly remake this movie in 16 millimeter. <laughs> that's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to happen. So I have the, I have the Chris Nolan uh, statements here. So he spoke first to ET online. ET online. <laughs> Not first call, but he know. said, uh, "Oh, I mean disbelief." He said, in "Disbelief, especially the way in which they did it. There's such controversy around it. They didn't tell anyone." Uh, in 2021, they've got some of the top filmmakers in the world. They've got some of the biggest stars in the world who worked for years in some cases on these projects that are meant to be big screen experiences. And now they're being used as a lost leader for the streaming service without any consultation. Oh, and then later he uh, issued a comment to The Hollywood Reporter uh, where he said, some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find they were working for the worst streaming service. Oh, saucer of milk to the gentleman yeah. at table five. I don't always agree with Christopher Nolan, as you know, and I don't I don't think he's entirely right or entirely wrong here. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think Warner Brothers is doing this entirely lightly. I think they're probably right that cinema audiences are going to be continue to be down for most of next year and probably all of next year in the US, given its appalling Trump response to the crisis. But equally, you know, there is an element of it being a loss leader for HBO Max, which has not taken off as fast or as far as as the studio hoped. And and that does kind of suck. If you're like us, waiting for the big screen outing of uh, Dune. Dune. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't <laughs> want to see that on streaming first. You want to see it on mm-hmm. IMAX, quite frankly. Yeah. Because there was a big deep dive, wasn't there, in the, in the Hollywood Reporter on the back of lists, using a lot of... My sources tell me, or someone mm. spoke in the condition of anonymity, uh, basically said that a lot of filmmakers are not happy about this, that Denis Villeneuve is one of these people because he made his movie for the biggest screen possible. And now some dickhead's going to watch it on their iPhone and then go, oh, June was a bit rubbish, wasn't it? Yes. Thanks a lot, pal. And mm. uh, yeah, Legendary are reportedly upset yes. about this as well because they uh, have, you know, they are partners on these movies on Godzilla versus Kong and Dune with Warner Brothers. Uh, the, a lot of the budget, in fact, most of the budget has been pumped in by Legendary, but Warner's controlled the distribution. And so they're allegedly, reportedly not happy about these movies being included in this mm-hmm. 2021 Everything Must Go HBO Max slate deal. Uh, so yeah. it's interesting. I mean, we spoke about this at length last week, as I said, and I was trying to find the positives in this. This has given me a little bit of pause, actually. If filmmakers are upset about this, then maybe we should listen to them. But listen, let's see what happens. Let's keep an eye on it. And uh, and things may change over the coming weeks. Absolutely. You they are changing know. fast, you know, so. We should also talk, we've been talking about Spider-Man a little bit on this show uh, in the last few minutes, but we should probably talk about the the rumours, we've ignored these rumours long enough, they've been knocking around for a while. The rumours that Spider-Man 3, really confusing one, but anyway, the film that will not be called Spider-Man 3, John Watts's Spider-Man Far From Home slash Spider-Man Homecoming sequel, which is filming right now, folks, it's filming mm-hmm. right now, comes out in December next year, is going to be some kind of 
weird multiversey type thing. So I'm sure you heard the rumors over the last few weeks that it is going to, you know, that uh, I'm not even sure if it was confirmed, but that Jamie Foxx is going to be playing Electro. And of course, Jamie Foxx played Electro in the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man 2. And we all went, what? Is this a big multiverse type thing? And then some genius in the show said, I wonder if they're maybe compiling a Sinister Six, maybe composed of villains from all three live-action Spider-Man iterations. So the Tobey Maguire bad guys, mm. the Andrew Garfield bad guys, and the Tom Holland bad guys mm. as well. And lo and behold, folks, that is exactly what they seem to be doing because none other than Alfred Molina has been spotted on set. And he, of course, played Dr. Octopus in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Guy called Otto Octavius gets eight arms. What are the chances? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so good. Uh, yes. What do we think about this? I'm a fan of Spider-Man Two, as you know. I'm a fan of uh, of Alfred Molina's Doc Ock. I think it's a just a great, great, great comic book villain. Power um, of the sun and a power of my hand. Yep. I think I'm a little wary though of all these rumors this week. Obviously, you know mm. that one seems to be a little bit more. Um, Closer to being confirmed, let's say, than, than some of the others. But there's been rumours of Garfield coming back, of Maguire, of... Not, not, lift, not like Bill Murray. <laughs> no. Well, you never know. That's, it's a multiverse. We can't rule anything out. That'd be a particularly unexpected spin. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> he already got confused once and did that because he thought the other Coens were directing, didn't he? So, you know, it, it's it's possible. Um, but, you know, it, they just did a sublime Spider-Perverse movie. Right, mm. I'm not sure why you would want to be compared to that. In all honesty, and I, I, that's my big hesitation with this: is are you, are you doing this because this is what, you know, Tom Holland, Peter Parker's story demands, or are you doing this because everybody really liked that animated film? Because the reason mm. everybody really liked that animated film is not because there's more than one Spider-Man in it; it's because it's extraordinarily good. Mm-hmm. So. I'm just a little bit wary. That said, I mean, all of these are fun people and could be fun. I mean, Jamie Foxx's Electro didn't set my world alight, but like, he's good often, so maybe it will work. <laughs> I, 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 it's yeah. Christmas Eve. It is Christmas Eve. I'm just, you know, it doesn't look like a bike-shaped present. That's all I'm saying. I don't see the downside here at all. I think this is a really, really fun and exhilarating yes. concept. I think this, this is fantastic. And yes... I think they're aware that the Spider-Verse exists. And I, I know, th- that, I know It's a dangerous are. game. It's absolutely yeah. a dangerous game. Spider-Verse is one of the greatest superhero films of all time. It is an mm. incredible achievement. It is blinding. And as you say, yep. its success is not because there's a whole bunch of Spider-Men and pigs in it as well. Uh, its success is because it was, you know, it pushed the envelope in terms of its animation. The script is great. The characterization was great. The action sequences were, were phenomenal. And it looked like nothing else you'd ever seen before. But the... Tom, the John Watts movies, the Tom Holland movies, yeah, they've they've emphasised character, I think, mm. over the, the the superhero scrapes that that Spidey gets into, and I think this is also slightly different. I think this could do that. I think you know having that version of Peter Parker discover that there are other Peter Parkers and there are other Spider Men and that there are other bad guys. And I also think, quite frankly, the idea of if this is what they're doing, compiling a Sinister Six from previous movies. 
that's that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. And that's something that's... That's infinity-level plotting, you know, yeah. infinity-gauntlet plotting. Because, you know, why introduce more MacGuffins if you just reuse the MacGuffins you already have? I'm totally, totally on board with yeah. that. You know my feelings on overcomplicating blockbuster plots and especially mm. adding in too many bad guys. And I, and I think you're right. This could get around that problem quite neatly by giving us bad guys we already semi-know and semi-remember, hopefully. Mm. Although I would question how many of Tom Holland's teenage audience actually remember <laughs> certainly the Raimi Spider-Man movies. They probably, they may not have seen those. So there is a little bit of a, a hesitation there. But but you're right. I mean, this could be a very quick way to kind of do a a Spider-Verse type thing in live action. It also gives you potentially great scenes where, you know, Tom Holland, Peter Parker, now without a mentor in Tony Stark, kind of has mentors in previous Spider-Men, in, in Spider-Men who have potentially been doing this for 20 years in their own realities. That could be, that could give you some really emotional, really beautiful scenes. Mm -hmm. I'm in no way saying this is a, a terrible, awful, bad idea and everything should be cancelled. I just, I have concerns because it could be overly complex i'm not really here for this i gotta be honest with you not because it's i'm i'm conflicted i'm conflicted because i feel like you know i love the mcu i love the purity of it and those other spider-man films feel like an other thing like an unconnected thing and i don't love the idea of bringing them into it i think also this is one of these things where if they pull this off this could be fantastic but it's going to be so hard to do this well and so easy to fuck it up. And obviously, I do trust in them. They have great form in this, you know. I'm And the presence of, of Doctor Strange and the tying it into the sort of multiverse of madness aspect of it appeals to me. Mm -hmm. So I definitely haven't written this off, but my spider sense is tingling and not in a good way. Like I'm a bit like, oh, I sense danger. I'm really worried this is not going to end well that's at all. That's interesting. That's surprising. Uh, it's very surprising. I, I have faith in them. I don't think they're just going to replicate uh, Spider-Verse. Mm. No, I don't, think, I I don't right. think so. I hope you're right. I really I wouldn't do. be surprised if there's nothing more than glorified cameos for, for Garfield and Maguire. And Entirely possible. Just, just talk about Kirsten Dunst as well, coming back as Mary Jane. And that the focus is on, as we know, this Spidey, the Tom Holland Spidey, um, on the run because now his identity has been revealed yeah. to the world. And uh, I think this probably came not so much from Spider-Verse, but just from the audacity of having J.K. Simmons turn up at the end of the last <laughs> yeah. movie as J. Yeah. Jonah Jameson and suddenly realizing, hang on a second, we can begin to blend the worlds, but what if they are literally the worlds beginning to blend because there are different multiverses and things are opening up and it's an interesting uh, concept that we can explore? Uh, yeah, and also there were rumours this week that Charlie Cox is going to be Daredevil in the mm. movie at, yeah. at some point. We don't know anything about this film. These are all rumours. Nothing's confirmed. Uh, I've just realised as well, there's a big old Disney investors <laughs> yes. phone call that we're probably Later going to today. have to add the breaking news klaxon to in a, in a second. We're probably going yeah. to come back tomorrow and talk about that because they may have just completely rendered this whole thing moot by announcing yeah. it officially. So yeah. um, maybe we should stop talking. Yeah. You guys are cautious. Uh, James is cynical. Cautiously Helen's cautiously op optimistic. optimistic. Yeah. And I am, as ever, rushing headlong into it, going, gimme, gimme, gimme. <laughs> more, more. Kissing it with tongues. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> but there we go. Uh, so, you're, you're after the three Spider-Man Infinity box set, are you? Oh, my God. Give me, that. give me all the Spider-Man. That's what I A want. Spider-Verse Blu-ray box set. I, just, I keep wanting to, to sing the song from Kimmy Schmidt, and it's, it's really distracting. <laughs> Breaking news. 
breaking news. Beep, 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 beep. Yes, folks, that is the breaking news klaxon once again justifying the lavish and massive outlay on it. Frankly, I couldn't get that £9.95 back even if I wanted to because I've lost a receipt. Anyway, this is ordinarily the part of the show where you would expect that Team Empire would reconvene the morning after the night before to talk about all of the 278 different Disney slash Marvel slash Star Wars slash Pixar projects that were announced during that oh-so-romantic investors phone call yesterday. None of which pertained to Spider-Man, of course, and we should have guessed that would be the case, what with Spider-Man being a Sony property. But... We have had availability issues today on Friday, and quite frankly, we know that we're going to be talking about all that stuff for a decent chunk of time, probably at least 45 minutes. And we're aware that won't be fun for the listeners who frankly don't give two figs about the MCU. So we're going to get together later in the day and record that as its own special podcast, which will be up later today. And on next week's show, we will also address all of the other news that broke after we recorded yesterday, including the trailer for Bob Odenkirk's insane-looking action movie, Nobody, the incendiary statement about Warner Brothers' streaming plans from Denny Villeneuve, which makes Chris Nolan's words look like a conciliatory gesture, and of course, the sad death of Dame Barbara Windsor, star of so many of the great carry-on movies at the age of 83. So we'll be discussing all of that next week. Right, that is enough from me. It's back to, well, me. Time to roll out once again the stupidly expensive breaking news klaxon. Breaking news. Breaking news. Anything else to talk about? Yeah, so Oscar Isaac is going to play Solid Snake, not to be confused with Liquid Snake, who Genuinely as a character. What? Uh, no. Yeah. So this is the thing. So Metal Gear Solid is a very iconic series of video games. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it's incredibly cinematic. And and I remember it was Metal Gear Solid, I want to say four. I frankly lose track. It might have been three. I think it was four. Where the cutscenes were hours long, just hours long, <laughs> and involved frying eggs for extraordinarily long periods. Surely three minutes. Yeah, no, on no, a low temperature it so it doesn't go rubbery. And on. Yeah. There were eggs. The thing is, these these games are fucking batshit in a way that you're not sure how much of it is genuinely sort of Hideo Kojima being nuts or how much of it just hasn't survived the translation from the Japanese, but they're very peculiar. So you've got Solid Snake, who Oscar Isaac will be playing, mm. who is a soldier, for want of a better detail. Okay. There's Liquid Snake, who's no. kind of his brother slash clone, what? and their dad is called Big Boss. So... <laughs> And I'm not making that up. So, so you see what I mean? Like, it, 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 does, it, it's not something that can be faithfully recreated without a little bit of smoothing over, or it would just be drivel. <laughs> I'm so, Solid Snake, son of Big Boss. Son of Big Boss. Here is my brother, Liquid Snake. I <laughs> just what? Yeah. I mean, look, the games are great. The stories are great. They're fantastic, bold, just like incredible. Are they like sci-fi action making, or just action action or what? A little sort of like near future sci-fi okay. action, uh, a little bit. But they're, I mean, some of them take place in the past. But the technology, I guess is more near future because it's like cloaking devices and there's a ninja like well yeah there's Raiden who turns into an invisible ninja but the less said about the invisible ninja the better (laughs) he's behind Um, you indeed like there's a lot going on here and I just I mean an Oscar Isaac is amazing and I'm thrilled to bits that he's going to be playing Solid Snake Gas Snake has yet to appear perhaps he'll be in the film Um, but I just don't know how this works as a movie I just don't and maybe it will and they'll surprise me well done but 
it's well, batshit. Aren't we still waiting for the definitive great, great game to movie translation? This could be it. Perhaps you this know, is we've it. said it before, but maybe this time it could it could happen. I don't know. Like it, there's a huge fan base for this, and Jordan Roberts is, is making the film, and I'm going to reserve judgment until i see it mm. but if they mm. pull this off then fucking fair play to them if they could pull off oscar isaac's solid snake chris no then it's gonna be wow. a lot of happy chris, people stop. around the world that will probably lead to a liquid snake <laughs> oh no <laughs> if it leads to a gas snake then you have problems and you should see your gp or consult with his boss <laughs> <laughs> oh this is like carry on up the podcast this this week isn't it <laughs> I was just going to mention quickly, Chris Pratt is uh, apparently producing and starring in a karate comedy called The Black Belt. So Johnny Karate rides again, Parks and Recreation fans. Wow. Yeah, that's all I wanted to say about that. All right. That is it for early movie news this week. Now it's time to talk to our second guest. And it is Frank Marshall, the legendary film producer, Frank Marshall. You name a film, he's produced it, probably. But he's... (laughs) He, of course, along with his wife, Kathleen Kennedy, have produced tons and tons of classic Steven Spielberg movies over the years. They produced the Indiana Jones trilogy, of course. And uh, he is a director in his own right. Arachnophobia is 30 years old this year, folks. He also directed the likes of Alive and Eight Below. But it's been 14 years 14 years since he last directed a movie, uh, something he puts right with the new documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, which tells the story of the Brothers Gibb, of course, the Bee Gees, from their inauspicious beginnings as as young children who formed a singing group and then became some of the biggest recording artists the world has ever seen. Sound of that fever, tragedy. It's all in here. Some belting tunes in this movie, as you might imagine. Uh, and uh, I spoke to Frank Marshall on, yes, I'm going to say it, I'm afraid, the Dread Zoom. So I'm afraid there is some audio ducking. Not our choice, folks. Not our choice. The audio ducking and the audio dipping uh, that you've come to associate with the Dread Zoom uh, is present in this interview. But uh, I had a good time talking to Frank uh, about the BGs, about getting back into directing feature films after such a long hiatus. Uh, do please enjoy. Atla Doctor is in the house, as, as they say. <laughs> uh, how's it going? You, uh, how's your pandemic been? Uh, you know, really boring. Um, and uh, I, I was saying earlier that uh, I actually went to work yesterday and I had to put on socks. Uh, first time in eight months. Uh, <laughs> I wore long pants and socks. So, you know, I guess there's some some good things and some not so good things. Yeah, yeah. You get used to the slovenly life, don't you? You, you really do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but all through the pandemic, all through lockdown as well, Frank, you have been completing this movie. Uh, and I thought it was absolutely tremendous uh, as well, I have to say. Uh, and, you know, I, I am a, I am a casual fan, I, I should say, of the Bee Gees. But it came out, it just reminded me just how many incredible hits they have. It's just hit after hit after hit. I immediately danced in the living room and put some uh, songs on Alexa for my wife. <laughs> it's just it's just an incredible back catalog. No, it, it's what happened when I started the project. <clears throat> I have daughters, 22 and 24. And of course, they were 18 and 20 when I started this. But when I said, just so, you know, guess who wrote this? And they go, uh, you know, Dolly Parton or uh, Kenny Rogers or Barbara Streisand. I said, no, 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 the Bee Gees. Because they said, well, who are the Bee Gees? I said, well, you know that Saturday Night Fever? Oh, yeah, I like that. 
Well, here's the other ones. And it's extraordinary, their catalog of songs and what impact they've had on the world. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, so it's, you know, to go from this, as you do in the documentary, to go from stuff like uh, Massachusetts and this, or uh, as Noel Gallagher says in the documentary, the more sort of Beatles sounding era, then to suddenly just switch gears, get into the more funky soul R&B style. And then, of course, they basically, they, did, they didn't invent disco, but they perfected it. <laughs> with, uh, yeah, yeah, they gave it a melody. Yeah, they absolutely did. I mean, Stay Alive. I mean, that's the, you start the movie with that incredible guitar line. And I guess that's basically the only place you can start with the Bee Gees, right? Yeah, I really wanted to introduce them. Because um, as you say, a lot of people, you know, they're saying the who? And it's actually my favorite line from Noel Gallagher when he said, I heard this thing on the radio and I said, who's that? And they said, oh, it's the Bee Gees. He said, the Bee Gees? You know, it's, it's but yeah, they're kind of unknown. And that's, you know, I, I think hopefully what we're doing with the movie is we're reintroducing and introducing people to how brilliant they really were. Yeah, absolutely. And was that part of the reason why you did it, Frank? Because you've got music in your bones. Your father was a composer. Um, he wrote the Monsters theme, for God's sake. And uh, and uh, you've got Jimmy Buffett doing a song from the point of view of a spider on arachnophobia. You know, you've, you seem to have dabbled in music all the way through your career. And you and Barry Gibb are pr- roughly around the same age. So did you come up with the Bee Gees? Were you a Bee Gees fan? Is this why you did it? Well, we're actually only 10 days apart. That's how close we are in age. Um, no, it was kind of being in the right place at the right time. Uh-huh. Um, I was meeting with the new, well, at that time, the president of Capitol Records, Steve Barnett. And um, I wanted to meet him and I wanted to go to Capitol because my dad was under contract at Capitol back in the 50s and the 60s uh, when he wrote The Munsters. Um, he was, that was his television thing, but he actually made albums for Capitol Records. So uh, I spent a lot of time in that building as a kid. and. And Steve had restored it, and I loved to visit. And we were talking about movies and what they were doing and what we might do together. And he said, you know, I just acquired the catalog to the Bee Gees. And, and, you know, we're looking for ways to, you know, reintroduce their music. And I thought, well, now there's a great family story. You know, I'm the oldest. I got brothers, music together blending the two loves, movies and music, you know, it all kind of fit together. And that was four years ago. Wow. And did you know the full extent of the BG story when you when you took it on? I, I had no idea. Okay. I had no idea. Because it has everything, doesn't it? It has, you know, it has the sort of the, the rags to riches element. It has fallouts. It has obviously tragedy later in life uh, as well. Um, it has backlashes. It has huge, huge monster songs. It's got, it's all, all the dramatic elements. Yeah, and it's got humor. You know, that's what I loved about them. They were funny. They were brothers. Uh, they had squabbles, and you know, it it it, it did have everything. Once I started looking at it, uh, it's just an incredible journey. And their perseverance and and their longevity is what was amazing to me. How did they last through all these different periods and changes in not only uh, you know life but music? Yeah, and you have this. Um... This is a never-ending cavalcade of incredible guest stars as well, uh, uh, interviewees. And um, uh, I'm presuming, did you do the interviews yourself or, or did you do some? Did, how, how, did, how did that work out for you? 
I did some. We traded off. Uh, my writer, uh, Mark Monroe, uh, did some. I did some. I was there for some that he did. He was there for some that I did. Uh, yeah, what was extraordinary to me, Chris, was that we didn't have to chase these people. They all wanted to do them. They all loved the beaches. They all had a the beaches had an impact on them that they wanted to talk about. I mean, Justin Timberlake, he's not an easy interview to get. He want he changed everything, moved it around. And in fact, when we were when I was asking him questions, it became like a conversation. I kept getting into the camera and they'd say, no, get back. And it was so enthusiastic. And in fact, I left one of my answers in the movie just so I could remember how cool it was to to talk to Justin. <laughs> Amazing stuff. And because because Justin is, you know, he did the Barry Gibb talk show repeatedly on SNL. Because he loved he loves them. He was honoring them. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's such an affectionate Mickey take, I guess, as well. But he gets yeah. it absolutely spot on, he and, and Jimmy Fallon. Uh but it is. It's one of those things where you know, I'm, I'm, I'm British. We love the Bee Gees over here, but occasionally they could be the brunt of jokes as well. And I think that's one thing that the movie does. It gets past that. It gets past the idea of. I mean, you even have it. You even have people laughing at the idea of the falsetto in in the film. But you get past that to get to the musicianship. And I think that's really interesting. You put that to the fore. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's what I discovered. Um, was their incredible musicality and their creativity as songwriters. It wasn't shallow. It was really deep and meaningful. And that's how they connected with their, and look at, they wrote over a thousand songs. I mean, it's incredible. And, you know, I love that moment where <clears throat> I've always thought, well, you know, everybody works really hard on their, on their songs and they must do a lot of, research and they rewrite and they rewrite and Barry's gone. No, I, about 10 minutes when we were sitting on the steps because the lights went out, we were, you know, mining design. I said, no, no, don't tell people that, <laughs> you know, maybe that's why they don't respect you as much as they might, because it's so easy, but it just came natural to them. In your career, obviously you've worked with the, you know, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Steven Spielberg. That's the guy. Oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. And just you saying that there, that reminded me of the you know the famous improvisation, of course, on on Raiders, where you know he had this massive sword fight that boiled you know boiled down to Indy just shooting the guy on the day, and that sort of improv, it doesn't come easy. That's that's tinged with genius, isn't it? Yeah, and it was motivated by a challenge, a problem. You know, uh, we were behind. It was storyboarded. You know, to take much longer than we had. Harrison was not feeling well, and Stephen had this idea. It, it challenged his creativity, and he created in the moment. And look, we have one of the most iconic moments in the history of movies that was not in the script. Now, imagine how much more iconic it would be, Frank, if it was soundtrack to Stand Alive. <laughs> yeah, but how about that one? Created because the drummer's mother was sick in London. Uh, who, uh, you know, who would believe that you put that in a script and then say, no, no, take that out. It's too much of a coincidence. Nobody would believe it. But look what happened. 
<laughs> and they've got this thing where they, they, they again they don't quite create looping, but they're they're pioneers in the way that it's used and the way it's implemented in music and the way it sounds human. It's it's kind of mind boggling, you know. Uh, yeah, I think you come out of this for, with a newfound respect for the Bee Gees and 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 you yourself, Frank. This is you've directed over the the last few years. You've directed a couple of of documentaries for TV, but this is a theatrical movie. It is your fifth theatrical movie as director uh your first in 14 years why did we have to wait so long because <laughs> i love producing so much and it's a lot easier <laughs> <laughs> that's simple huh <laughs> well and, and my wife went to work for that lucas guy and then that turned into something so i didn't have any help you know so i had to do the you know the producing all on my own um, but then this came along, so okay, okay, it worked out fine. But how do you flirt with directing more through your career? Because you know, it's it seems. Yeah, I like to do a lot of things at once, but I do feel that there are stories that come along that you feel that you want to tell and that you're passionate about telling. I mean, certainly, Eight Below was one of those. Mm -hmm. You know, I love dogs. I love that story. It's also based. I seem to gravitate towards these true stories, and maybe that's why I like docs. I don't know. But so, you know, now we're in transition again with a lot of different things in my life, uh, in our company. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be at a point that I can pick and choose what I want to do. I've got indie, I've got Jurassic, there may be another born, who knows. <laughs> um, but, you know, I also have the opportunity to now dabble in live theater. I've got a Broadway project coming. So, I like doing a lot of different things. And rightly so as well. I also love the way you just dropped the uh, the other born <laughs> tidbit in there. <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, well, I've, I've got to ask you, I, mean, I can't pin you down on that one, but uh, I've got to ask you about the state of play with, with Indy 5. It's obligatory what's happening with the Indy 5 question. Uh, what is happening with Indy 5? Uh, it's being written. Um, you know, I'm waiting to be surprised. I haven't seen anything. I'm waiting for Jim Mangold. So someday he'll send me the script. <laughs> <laughs> Are you on his case every day? Come on, Jim. <laughs> no, because we can't start shooting anyway. So <laughs> that's a very, very good point. Absolutely. Yeah, we can't even prep. You know, we can't prep. We can't do anything. You are on Twitter uh, and you're at the doctor on Twitter. Where did that handle come from? I've always wanted to know. Well, as I think you probably know, uh, I used to be Dr. Fantasy was my stage name as a magician and on many of my movies i always did a magic show sort of in the spirit of tommy cooper where some tricks worked and some tricks didn't and people used to call me the doctor and so one of my friends uh labeled me le doctor and so when i went to get a screen name for aol way back when was that early 90s oh yeah yeah okay <laughs> my assistant put in l-e-l -L doctor lel doctor <laughs> she hit the l one more time and i couldn't ever undo it <laughs> you know there was no you know once it was in back then it was in That's so it. i've been lel doctor forever and i wanted to be lay doctor and i was able to do it on twitter and I actually started in a little hotel in uh, Greenland, uh -huh. shooting The Last Airbender. Uh, that was my first tweet, I think. 
and I became Le Doctor. <laughs> and how's your how's your Twitter game these days? Are you a, are you a lurker? Do you do you, you still you still tweet obviously from time to time, but do you mainly lurk on Twitter and watch people from afar? No, I, I like to, you know, I do read what people say and I try to answer if there's a question about a movie or something and I have a moment. Uh, I do like to put up, you know, a behind the scenes stuff from the old days, particularly, you know, when we're celebrating things. But I like to have a positive aspect. I, I'm not snarky on Twitter. I don't comment politically. But I, I like to, you know, people love to hear these stories like that one. <laughs> Um, and, and find out where stuff came from. And there's, you know, there's a lot of urban myths out there I like to dispel. Um, but yeah, listen, I'm, I'm happy to share and I do use it to promote things. You know, I like to tell people what's coming and, and uh, to look out for things. So um, again, using it in a positive way. Absolutely. And then uh, the last thing I want to talk about, uh, we've actually discussed this uh, briefly on Twitter in the past. But one of my favorite comedies of all time is a movie that you not only produced, but you were the second unit director on, and it is Noises Off. I adore that film. I try and watch it at least once a year. Uh, I've, oh, I've, great. I've slipped up. I haven't watched it this year so far, Frank. I've got to put that right in the next month or so. But uh, it's it's such an incredible film, and I think fairly little known. But I was just wondering what your memories were of directing second unit in that. What exactly did that entail for you? Well, it, it was a wonderful reunion for me with Peter Bogdanovich, you know, who, who was my mentor. And the reason I'm here today is he believed in me and trusted me and, and hired me on Last Picture Show after Targets. But, you know, Targets was sort of a volunteer job, but Last Picture Show was a real movie and he had to conduce, or convince the producers to hire this kid. Yeah who didn't know anything. So for me, it was a, a great reunion. I loved the play. And, you know, I had done all the second unit directing and, you know, we had these sequences where the transitions, you know, because we had to tell the story differently than the play, we actually had to move the cast around. And, you know, so it was a really interesting uh, challenge for me as a producer, as well as fun for me as a second unit director to show my mentor and help my mentor with his vision for the movie. And I have to say there was nothing that made me happier than to get his call and say, I love that shot of the bus arriving at the blah, blah in, in Ohio. But you know, what a cast, what a cast. And the fact that Peter, he knew, he knew that the joy of when you watch the play mm -hmm is that it was all happening at once. And there was, you know, and the timing of everything made it funny. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do that in the movie. And that was harder because, you know, when you cut, it, it just has a, a subliminal effect to how you're looking at things. So that's why he designed all these shots and the set and everything. And, you know, John Ritter and, and Carol Burnett and Denim Elliott was in it. It's his last movie. Oh my God. That? You know, just wonderful, you know, Christopher Reeve, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful actors. It was a joyous ex experience, so much fun. Um, but I, I'm, you know, maybe we can get that one going again. It was, 
I'd love people to see it because you're right. It's really a, a wonderful movie. I think when you're making a documentary like this, it's obviously such a difficult thing. You have to choose what to include. You have to choose what to exclude. I noticed that there is no mention of the Bee Gees Sgt. Pepper movie. Was that, was that something you wanted to overlook? Is that something Barry wanted to forget? No, it, it's just those choices that you make. I, I didn't feel that it really impacted um, the arc of their career i mean and and to set it up and to spend the time i mean there are a lot of other clips that i wanted in the movie that i would have traded so yeah look they they had a lot of ups and downs that was a bad choice they all admit it but you know to set it up and to then comment on it and everything it's five minutes i needed that five minutes to tell the story of uh you know of the uh, uh the drum loop and you know i'd rather show those things that really impacted their journey. That could have its own two-hour documentary, Frank, to be honest. But uh... I, I, You know, the more I, I look at it, I, I'm sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, on that note, I'm going to let you go. Frank Marshall, a.k.a. at Le Doctor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Chris. Great to see you and talk to you. Likewise, you sir. Soon. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Okay, so that was Frank Marshall and the Bee Gees documentary, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, is out on the 14th. So it's out on Monday, the 14th. So we'll be reviewing it in next week's show. Bumper show. We're recovering a whole bunch of weeks while we're off over the Christmas break. So that's why next week is a two-parter, folks. This week's films available in cinemas for some, <laughs> uh, on your sofaplex for others. Let's get into it now. We're going to start with Dreamland, the Margot Robbie-produced Margot Robbie-starring Dreamland, in which she plays a wounded bank robber who forms an interesting alliance with a young farm boy in America in the Great Depression. Jimbo. Yes, this is this somewhat delayed release, actually. It's coming to us, what is it, like three years after shooting? This has come from director Miles Joris Perifit, who's actually doing the upcoming uh, Tank Girl remake as well. Mm. And this stars former Peaky Blinder Finn Cole as a sort of farm boy, as you say, living in the Dust Bowl during the 19... I want to say 20s, 30s? Which is it, Helen? When was the Great Depression? 30s. 30s. Yeah. 1930s. There we go. Uh, so he takes <laughs> himself dinner, away dinner. from all of that misery by reading pulp books about outlaws and, and fugitives. Uh, and then he finds a real-life one hiding out in the family barn in the form of Margot Robbie's fugitive, Alison. And so, with kind of few prospects, you know, family debt, a stepfather he hates, who's a police deputy played by Tra Travis Fimmel, um, he decides whether or not to turn her in for the bounty or help her flee to Mexico. Spoiler, he doesn't turn her in. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what this kind of turns into is, I guess, a kind of very low-key Bonnie and Clyde, you know? Mm. I think the main thing that stands out about this film for me is that it's just it's very very nice to look at like it it really makes the most of the Texan landscape you know it's got rolling plains there's a big vortex of a dust storm in it and the title I think is quite telling as well like it has a kind of languid dreamlike quality all the way through it like it kind of drifts along and carries you with it uh, kind of aided or sort of facilitated by this sort of sleepy voiceover from Eugene's sister Cole and Robbie both great Robbie in particular I also really like Travis Fimmel as this kind of hard-assed deputy stepfather it's a small role but it is always nice to see Ragnar Lothbrok getting to appear in something. It's not a life-changing film. It doesn't really do anything new. And honestly, mm. I think you'd be hard-pressed for anyone to remember this in two years' time. But I think it's a, it's a solid entry on the CVs of everyone maybe involved. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing in terms of repeat viewings, because if you can not remember having seen it the first time, 
It'll be a great experience. Just really, yeah. really fresh. Yeah, I thought everybody was good in this. I just, uh, it's it's the same thing. I, I don't know that I'll remember anything about it tomorrow. And no. I only saw it last night. So. I've already forgotten it. What, remember it yeah. about what? <laughs> anyway, we should probably go and start talking about films, shouldn't we? We should, we should. Uh, so yeah. the first film this week is Dreamland, <laughs> which is a... No, we're not going to do that to no. you, folks. No, we're not. Mainly because I can't remember what I said five minutes ago. <laughs> but uh, we gave this one three stars. I gave this one three stars. And at the, Jimbo, That's fair. Yeah, it's, you summed it up absolutely perfectly. It's it's beautiful to look at, really. You know, we should give a shout out to the, the DP and this Lyle Vincent because it's just wonderful. And it's, it's got a lovely dreamy quality to it. And performances are very, very good. But there's absolutely nothing here that you haven't already seen. And probably in a better film as well. Three stars then for Dreamland. Uh, now we're going to move on to The Prom, mm. which is Ryan Murphy's adaptation of the hit Broadway musical and stars a cavalcade of A-listers and James Corden. Hell's Bells. <laughs> yes. So this is the adaptation of the hit Broadway musical, as you say. It's part of Ryan Murphy's massive Netflix deal. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like Ryan Murphy's other work. If you like fabulous people, like a genuinely starry, amazing cast, plus James Corden, uh, (laughs) wearing incredibly colourful, gorgeous clothing. This is a film for you. Nicole Kidman slinks in in this green sequin number that I would give at least one limb to be able to wear. It's amazing. And and there is a lot of fun, I think, to be had here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically, it's the story of these four kind of washed up Broadway has-beens, Meryl Streep's Dee Dee and James Corden's Barry have just appeared in a musical about the life of Eleanor Roosevelt, which is essentially flopped on opening night. So they're in a funk when they're joined by sort of has-been showgirl Angie, who's played by Kidman, and uh, never really was showman Trent, who's played by Andrew Rennells. And they all decide they need to figure out some way of getting back on top, of getting some attention, of getting some publicity, of proving that they're not these selfish monsters that everyone in, in on Broadway has dismissed them as. So what better way than to adopt a cause? And the cause that they hit upon pretty much by accident after some Googling is that of Emma, who's played by Jo Ellen Pellman, who's a lesbian girl in the Midwest who's been told she can't go to prom with her chosen date by the nasty head of the PTA, played by Kerry Washington. Boo. So they set off to make Emma their cause, whether she likes it or not. And of course, they immediately make things worse and then have to stick around town for far longer than they planned, mm-hmm. trying to sort everything out. And you know what? What? They might learn some valuable lessons along <laughs> the way, guys. The true friends with the prom they made along the way. All that, along. Yeah. Yes, etc. I mean, it's, a, it's not a, a story that's going to uh, change the world. This is nothing terribly surprising in here. But I thought it was pretty effective in places. I think uh, Joe Ellen does pretty well at standing up in the same scene as Meryl Streep and Nicole hmm. Kidman, which cannot be easy for a young actress. Ariana DeBose um, from Hamilton, I don't know if we've mentioned Hamilton today, is really good as her closeted girlfriend. You've got Keegan-Michael Key in his second musical role hmm. of the month, pretty much, after Jingle mm-hmm. Jangle. And he has a kind of quite sweet love affair type thing with uh, with Dee Dee, with Meryl Streep's character, which was unexpected and and inter- entertaining. But, you know, it's, it's very much a story that feels told, even though I'm not sure it has been, so that may be unfair, but it, it feels like we've seen this before and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not going to change the world. 
But again, it's nice to have an LGBT story being told like this, I suppose, and, and getting the big screen, glossy, colourful, big star treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, while a, a lot screen. of James... Yeah, a small screen. <laughs> well, I suppose small yeah. screen. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think a lot of people kind of tripped over the fact that James Corden is playing a gay man, um, which I understand. I feel like if Ryan Murphy is okay with it, I think the rest of us can probably put up with it. Mm-hmm. I've, you know... I think, uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because he would have directed him to that performance. This isn't a yeah. performance that James Corden has just arrived at and just turned up on set and gone, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is something that they've clearly worked on and collaborated on. Uh, certainly, I, I read one piece by Benjamin Lee in The Guardian mm. uh, where he said he wasn't particularly happy with with that. And I have to say, listen, I, I applaud all of the the uh, intent behind it but I I, 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 I I struggle with this movie <laughs> I really struggle with this movie this is pretty much everything I don't like about musicals in one musical mm. and I'm really struggling with it to the point where I'm basically watching it in five minute segments <laughs> because each segment is just so toe curlingly awful that I can't bear it and I have to I have to turn it off walk around the room for a little bit, steal myself up to watch another five-minute segment. I anticipate I will be finished watching The Prom by April. Well, that And I'll let seems, you know what I really think I mean, about it then. But definitely worth a time investment, yeah. And it's not a James Corden thing for me, although the minute he burst into song was the minute I considered throwing my computer into the Thames. <laughs> it's not that. I, I don't know. It was just it was just too much for me. I couldn't I couldn't bear it. I didn't like the songs. I didn't like the production design. I didn't like the camera work, the performances, yeah. the script. You know, it was just <laughs> so it was you, a small so thing not, for me. Yeah, you're not you're not 100 percent sold. Look, I do think I'm that <laughs> you're right in that this is very much a traditional Broadway show. This is not reinventing the format as I think your and my favorites have done things like obviously Hamilton, but even mm-hmm. stuff like. Um, Groundhog Day, uh, Book of Book of Mormon, Book Groundhog of Mormon. Day. Yeah. you know they they do something Avenue different. Q. This is very much yeah, but it's it's very much a sort of let's do the show right here kind of a yeah. vibe to it. That, that um, there's an archness to it, and a knowingness to it, and they know it's basically it's a musical. It knows it's a musical to an extent, and that, that's fine. Maybe it's because I don't have an affinity for it. Whereas if I had seen it on Broadway and I had listened yeah. to the soundtrack and I knew the songs inside out, then I would be absolutely chomping at the bit to watch the prom. And so I look, I just maybe need to become a little bit more familiar with the songs before I go into it but there was just it felt like an all out assault on my senses and (laughs) in a way that I'm not a fan of Moulin Rouge if if I'm honest with (gasps) you you know I know I know but I feel the same thing with Moulin Rouge I think it's just it's it's too much movie guys and I think you just need to focus on one of the movies you're making um, (laughs) and and leave the other 57 to to one side for the time being and that's 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 my advice to you Baz Luhrmann and I'm sure he'll take it (laughs) but I don't disagree I didn't it didn't blow my socks off, but I did think it was pretty well done. I think it's a committed cast who can all sing and dance and act a little. You know, I think they're they're very very talented people. And I think that gets you through. And it is mostly uh, with moments of real emotion, but it is mostly very upbeat and optimistic and bright and colourful and shiny and extremely well sequined, which I am super here for, as you know. You can see my Christmas tree behind us. You know, I'm very much about the colours and the shininess, and this brings. Mm all of the colours and so much of the shininess. So that is probably making me a bit warmer towards it than I might otherwise be. But Mm. it is very much a traditional musical with traditional big musical numbers. And if you're not on board for that, I would run a million miles. Three stars same for the prom. The next film we're going to talk about is the fifth and final film in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series of movies. So once again, as the prom is on Netflix, but also in in selected cinemas around the country. But this is a movie you can only see 
in this country on BBC One on Sunday or on the iPlayer at 9pm. And this one's called Education. Hell's Bells. Yeah, this is a subject that's very close to Steve McQueen's heart because he was kind of a victim of, of something very similar to, to what happens to the protagonist here when he was in school. He was essentially dismissed as a no-hoper, low-IQ guy who would never go anywhere, which just goes to show how little they knew at that point. But the same thing happens to uh, Kingsley Smith, who's our hero here. He's about 12 years old. He's played by Kenya Sandy, who is fantastic. And he's a rambunctious kid. He suffers from dyslexia. And the combination of these behavioural problems and the fact that he apparently can't read leads his school to write him off and just send him to a special school. And his mother, who is overworked, working two or three jobs, paid by Charlene White, goes along with this because of course she does. She's told her son is going to get more help. It's going to be better for him. He's going to be at this special school with these smaller classes. Great. It sounds good. Mm. And when he comes back from the, these this school and these classes, he's so horrified. He just shuts down. He just stops talking about school entirely. He's not mm. telling them anything. He's so depressed and and set adrift by this um, by the system. So she has no reason to believe initially that there's anything wrong. But then activists come into the family and start talking about the fact that this is happening. So Lydia Thomas, played by Josette Simon, um, and Naomi Aki's Hazel are basically mm -hmm. investigating these schools because it's clear that they're choosing their children in a, in a racist way and that they are yeah. dismissing young black kids as quote unquote, educationally subnormal to get them out of the mainstream system Jeez. and to doom them to a life of, you know, low educational achievement. Um, and so they, the, the family starts fighting back. So again, this is another one of these films in the Small Axe um, series that almost ends as it gets going, you know, so w this is not a big triumphant story that comes to a great conclusion. We don't see, you know, Kingsley graduate from Oxbridge with a whatever. It's more just about this Again, snapshot of a time and place. Yeah, it's a snapshot of a time and place. It's almost a, this microscopic focus on this family and what they go through and what they're put through by a system that is hostile to them and how they begin to kind of fight back and, and search for justice. So um, as such, I think it's just beautifully told that this, the family scenes are gorgeous. Um, Kingsley in his in both his schools, in his original school with his friends and then in this new school where there's just you know, kids with genuine educational problems, like a girl who just sits there and barks for for minutes at a time, uh, and and he's kind of just horrified by it and and completely at sea. He's extraordinary. I think this kid is so empathetic and so um, easy to root for. You know, so it I, th I think it's a wonderful, wonderful portrayal of the time and the place. And I hope nothing like this ever happens again. If you are watching this, you will be just fired up at the horrific injustice of it. And I think that's exactly what, how we should respond really to, well, pretty much all the Small Axe episodes. What a thing this has been. So we have had basically on BBC One for the last five weeks, we've had five brand new films, not all of them featured length necessarily, but five brand new films from one of the world's best directors. That's kind of amazing. It is. I love that. Yeah. I hope they, they continue to do that down the line. Um, I don't know how this project exactly originated. Was it Steve McQueen came to them? Did they go to Steve McQueen? Who knows? But if they can do that down the line with uh, maybe even other directors, yeah, then I'm all for it. 
So four stars, we get four stars into education, uh, which means I think the five small acts movies, first two got five stars and everything else after that got four. So that's 10, 18, 22 divided by five, five, so 4.5. So that's uh, an average of four point. Hang on, I'm going to do this in my calculator. Four and two thirds? 22 divided by five, 4.4. We can't round it up. Okay, four stars then for the whole Small Axe anthology series. There you go. Mathematics. Don't you just love it? The last two films this week are films only I have seen, so I'm going to talk about them very, very quickly. First of all, we have Reginald Hudland's Safety, which, as you've already heard us discuss, is a true story of Ray McElrathby, uh, who was, as I said, a young college football student. He had a scholarship at Clemson College, and then things get very complicated for him very quickly when he finds himself having to look after his younger brother, because their mother is essentially in prison, first of all, and then a series of drug rehab centres. And so he initially tries to squirrel his brother away in his room and then his coaches find out and rather than kick him to the curb, they decide to get behind him and try and help him out. And they, you know, they, they arrange for him to rent an apartment and look after his brother. But again, there are all sorts of obstacles are thrown up in his way whilst this is happening. And then ultimately, uh-oh, wouldn't you know it, big bureaucracy gets involved Ooh. and it all leads to a big old hearing. Will he be able to continue playing football? Will he be able to look after his brother as well? I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you can probably guess how this is going to end. Um, and this is, I, I thought I had a perfectly good time with this movie. It's on Disney Plus. It's not going to be in cinemas. It is a Disney Plus exclusive. So if you have Disney Plus, you could do a lot worse this weekend than check out Safety. It's, um, again, a bit like Dreamland. There's nothing here we haven't seen a million times before. But again, like Dreamland, it's well acted. It's well shot and it's quite stirring and inspirational as well. And I would say that Jay Reeves, who plays Ray, is uh, an actor I don't really know. I haven't really seen it before. He's something of a a newcomer. That's what Reginald Hudlin was looking for. And uh, I think he is bound for for bigger things down the line. That is for sure. He's uh, really, really impressive in this. And there are good supporting roles as well for the likes of Kareen Fox, Jamie Foxx's daughter, as uh, uh, a young girl at university with whom uh, Ray becomes potentially romantically entangled. Uh, James Badgedale, the always reliable James Badgedale, as one of his coaches, who seems to be a bit of a hard ass, but may, may, just may, have a softer interior lurking underneath. You know, you never know. Oh, I'm so you here for it. You never know. Absolutely. And also a really good performance from Thaddeus J. Mixon, who's very much a, a up-and-coming young actor, as Famar, his brother. Decent family drama, decent football movie. Three stars then for safety. Awesome. Jimby, you were about to say something. I was going to say, breaking news, Claxon, Taylor Swift is dropping another album today. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. The sister album to Folklore, it is called Evermore, also lowercase. Super here for it. Well, obviously, we've got more important things to talk about now than <laughs> the movies, but uh, I should talk very, very quickly about Songbird, which is the movie we were all dreading. 
Uh, yeah. It's a pandemic movie made in a pandemic. It's the first one. It was the one we were talking about, the Michael Bay produced movie. We talked about it on the uh, the podcast in the early weeks of the pandemic, directed by and co-written by a British director called Adam Mason. And uh, it stars an ensemble cast. It's got KJ Appa, uh, Sophia Carson, Craig Robinson from The Office, Jimbo and Helen, you'd like this, Bradley Whitford, who's mm. adding yet another sinister shit to his uh, <laughs> recent ever-growing list of sinister shit in horror films uh, on top of you know Cabin in the Woods and uh, Get Out and things like that uh, Peter Stomara is in it Alexandra Daddario is in it Demi Moore is in it Paul Walter Hauser is in it it's a really really I good think, cast is this because like everybody was at home and had nothing to do <laughs> I think that might I mean, be <laughs> that might have something to do with it but it's a fairly hackneyed movie folks uh, mm. I, I don't know how many people are going to be wanting to watch this movie so the basic premise of this that it's take it takes place four years from now, roughly four years from now, COVID-19 has mutated. The neutrinos <laughs> mutated. And COVID-19 has now become COVID-23. It's even no, more deadly, folks. It's even, it will kill you within two days. You do not want this This thing. It's it's bad. And uh, most people are now living their lives. Uh, they've even taken to Q zones, quarantine zones. So it's very oh, subtle, Lord. this movie. Very subtle. Uh, Q zones or uh, behind closed doors because COVID-23 is airborne, folks. It's airborne. And so if you go COVID-19. outside... But it's proper airborne. It's in the air, Ellen. It's in the air. It's going to be everywhere. And if you go outside and you're not immune, then, you know, you have to burn all your clothes when you get back. And so this is a bit like shortcuts, but a much shorter version of shortcuts, but also with a lot more coughing and not as much Huey Lewis penis and coherence, I think, or cinematic craft. How is it like shortcuts? It's because uh, it, it flits from character to character. Okay. So it's a series of interlinking vignettes almost. So, you know, the, we're wondering how are these characters, how are these disparate characters connected? How is Alexandra Daddario's sort of YouTube musician, how is she connected to Demi Moore's uh, rich woman who is apparently, it seems, uh, up to some shady business with her husband, played by Bradley Whitford? And how are they connected to this uh, this courier who is immune to the disease, played by K.J. Appa, who's riding around and he's got a six pack and his hair is all, you know, dancing in the wind and stuff. Uh, the <laughs> The film, the main focus of the movie, though, is on the love story between his character, Nico, and his girlfriend, Sarah. Even though they've never met, they've fallen in love across, you know, Zoom and stuff. And uh, she is compromised when someone close to her becomes infected. And that draws the attention of Peter Stormare, uh, who is, you know, hamming it up as, as ever in this as the evil head of the sanitation department very corrupt man and um, basically there's no character development in this movie whatsoever for any character with the potential exception of Paul Walter Hauser's character and Alexander Daddario's character otherwise the main character development or the main uh, area of growth I saw in the relationship between Nico and Sarah is that he's hot and she's hot and therefore they love each other I mean in fairness, yeah, that is how Hollywood often plays it. Yeah. It is, but there's I don't recall us learning anything about any of these characters at any point that shows why they love each other apart from the hotness. But hey, hey, ho. Hey. Listen, you know, if you want to watch a movie about the pandemic, uh, but, you know, <laughs> amped up to the max, so COVID-19 is going all the way up to 11 in this movie, then, you yeah, know, knock yourself out. No, genuinely knock yourself out. 
because it would be preferable to watching this movie, I think. Honestly, what's the point? I just, I don't understand. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I do plan to watch this. The, the link only arrived with me this morning, so I literally haven't had time before we record this. But I just, it, it, I just don't want to see a COVID film. I don't want to see any COVID films ever, really. Yeah. If you think about how many films there aren't about the Spanish flu epidemic... It gives you some idea. That's what we're aiming for, people. Okay. Hmm. Pretty much nothing. Maybe yeah. a glancing mention in Twilight. That's it. Yeah. They weren't rushing to make films about the Spanish flu back then, were they? I mean, it's it's so weird. Like they didn't make any films about the Black Plague at the time either, did they? No, they that's just, true. You know, they, they, like, they didn't contemporary rush to it. films are just missing, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah just mm. weird. Mm. So no weird. No one was going to, but they wanted him to make it in digital, and he was like, "Fuck you." <laughs> He took out his massive 10-foot-wide wallet with his IMAX still in it, <laughs> lifted it out, <laughs> looked at an image of Adam Sandler and with his moustache. Oh, so lovely. Anyway, um, <laughs> anywhere between one and two stars for Songbirds, depending on your... Actually, you know what? 19. 19 stars no. for Songbird. That's what I'm mm. going to give it. There we go. No, it's, it's probably not worth your time, folks. But anyway, uh, on that note, on that bombshell, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, episode 444. Join us next week for the last regular Empire Podcast of the year. I'm going to tell you right now, as I've already said, it is going to be a bumper, an epic, a marathon. It is going to be a two-parter, not least because we have three guests on the show. We're going to be joined by David Oyelowo, the star Ooh. of Come Away. We're going to be joined by the stars of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, who play Ma mm. Rainey's uh, backing band, the wonderful Glyn Terman, Coleman Domingo, and Michael Potts. And we're also going to be joined by the stars of Freaky, Freaky, Freaky. which is out on Boxing Day, Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton. That's one hell of a way to finish the year, I have to say. Uh, but we're going to split the, the show into two parts, not least because we have to review about 455 films in that, including, huh. but not limited to, Wonder Woman 1984, Squeak. Come Away, Let Him Go, My Rennie's Black Bottom, We Can Be Heroes, The Midnight Sky, Freaky, Soul, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Sylvie's Love, and American Utopia. And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> holy, holy shit. So come back next week for the final episodes of the Empire Podcast this year. But until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Nicole Kidman's top billing. Oh, we didn't mention that, did we? That she's billed <laughs> behind James Corden. I mean, in this in the prom. It's frankly disrespectful and I won't have it. She's anyway, been cordoned off. Bye. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Helen O'Hara. I forgot to say her name, but yes, yeah. Helen O'Hara. Hi. Uh, it is goodbye from a man who has called himself on Squadcast a massive canute. I uh, yes. don't know what you've done This there. is because I'm playing an awful lot of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which is a Viking simulator. So I am, in many ways, a massive canute. I'm off now. I'm off now to go because now, as we, as we, as this podcast goes out, the new Taylor Swift folklore companion album, Evermore, <laughs> will be available for me to listen to. So I'm immediately going to go and listen was, to that. I thought now. it wasn't dropping until this evening. Yeah, but when this goes out, it'll be oh. Friday, and it drops oh. on Friday morning. So oh. it's announced as we record. But by the time we go out, I will be listening to it. Yeah, glorious days. Probably in a bubble bath or something like that. I'll be wearing my Taylor Swift branded cardigan cozying up with a cup of hot cocoa and a walk through the woods probably yes, that too <laughs> maybe i'll go and give that album a listen as well i i i don't know taylor swift's music very well uh 
There was a, oh. a brief period where I became addicted to it, but I managed to uh, oh, shake, nice. it, shake it off. Shake it off. There we go. <laughs> I knew it. That was. Great. I didn't. I didn't see where it was going soon enough to run away, which was a, sh- a shame. It's the only Taylor Swift song I know. No. Anyway, that is it for me. I am off to immerse myself in the music of Taylor Swift and just listen for the knock on the door, the little rap, 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 which heralds the arrival of my Infinity Saga Blu-ray box set. Lord Christ. Thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you for listening. See you next time.